Hello and welcome to episode 29 of Double Reel, the podcast for the discerning film nerd. It's September 2022 and the UK mourns the passing of its longest serving monarch, the economy faces a mounting cost of living crisis and screaming man babies are having to live with the existence of hobbits of colour. We're here to help you get through it all with the generous helping of content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you for that lovely introduction, and it's good to be back at it. We aim to provide an old-school film-goers experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can refuel and refresh before you tackle the second half. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at DoubleReelFilm. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can also follow us on letterbox.com slash double real where we list all the films we discussed in the podcast and much more besides. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify or whichever platform you use as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Here's what's coming up in episode 29. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, how we're doing on our film-related resolutions for 2022, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and instead get round to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month, it's classic 70s conspiracy thriller, The Parallax View. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known or underappreciated film that deserves a wider audience, which this month sees the return of our first ever entry in this feature, Brian De Palma's Blowout. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 29, it's Louis Mal's Moon Over Miami. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month discusses the 21st century update of The Manchurian Candidate. After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 29, we have an in-depth look at conspiracy theories in the movies. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the podcast magazine letters page. Fletch got in touch via the DMs, thought you might be interested in the new Hellraiser film coming in October with a female pinhead. Yes, I do want to see that. I think it's going to be on Disney+. Plus. Probably not your cup of tea, though, James. Uh, Tony Friend of the Pod says, Enjoyed the last episode. Interesting to hear discussion of Two Days in the Valley and Under the Skin side by side. Two Days has a fairly complex plot, but all manages to hold together. You understand what everyone is doing and their motivation, unlike Under the Skin. For me, being able to understand what the actual fuck is happening should not be a luxury in a film. <laughs> see, I see your point. Uh, Mike, also a friend of the pod, enjoyed your sequel discussion. I forgot Highlander Two even existed. What a pile of shit! Small correction: I think all three Lord of the Film, Lord of the Rings films, were done together. Yeah, apologies, Mike. I think you're right. Uh, looking forward to your conspiracy discussion. I would count the Bourne trilogy as conspiracy films, and an underrated recent film in the genre is Snake Eyes, with Nick Cage in full Nick Cage mode. Yeah, I need to give that one another go. I wasn't keen on it the first time, but maybe, uh, maybe I was unfair. On our big conversation, conspiracy films, Paul says, I've always gravitated towards those types of films. I noticed a lot popping up around the Watergate era. All the President's Men is my one of my top five uh, favourite movies. Uh, Stephen and Jamie both think JFK is uh, the best uh, masterpiece and the best conspiracy movie of all time. On our Cuba country, Barry Lyndon, Tracy says, this is a masterpiece. I'm re-watching it again now. On our hidden gem, Blowout, Paul says, Brian De Palma is hugely underrated and Blowout is my favourite of his films. Ole agrees. It gets some love from Michael and Nicholas as well. On our remake, Hate Watch, Mick says, I actually think the remake is an improvement uh, on the original Manchurian Candidate. I really like the original, but it has weak spots and the new version is stronger overall. 
Chris comments on Day Shift, which we will be mentioning at the roundup with a one-word review. Sucked. See what you did there. <laughs> Another new release we'll be discussing is 3,000 Years of Longing, and Alan gets in touch with his view. I went into this with high hopes and really enjoyed the storytelling aspect, but overall it wasn't for me and had a lacklustre final act. Thanks for all your messages. Now on with the pod. Now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting and movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set for ourselves in 2022. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Just to quickly mention our other podcasts, which you might like to check out, The Adamson's Versus is where we step away from the world of film and talk about stories, news, and anything else that's caught our attention. Our most recent episode, The Adamson's Versus The Dodgy Vets, is out now, and we will soon be releasing a tie-in episode on our current theme, The Adamson's Versus The Conspiracy Theory. So, uh, as we've uh, as we've hinted, this uh, this month's episode has an overall theme of conspiracy uh, films and conspiracy uh, thrillers. Uh, all of the films uh, on our features... Uh, the, the the new films we watched this month are just the new films we watched this month. But all of the features we've chosen for this episode are conspiracy conspiracy thrillers or sit in that space. Um, uh, but before we get to that, the first thing we do in the roundup is always to talk about uh, news. Uh, what news from the world of film? Uh, so James, what's uh, what's caught your eye in the, in the film news uh, this month? Um, well, not was it yesterday or the day before? Jean Luc Jean Luc Godard. Passed away. Yes. Godard. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm missing another big one. What was the other big one? I didn't, I, see, I didn't see any others. I think I swear I, I sent you it and I said, "Oh wow." Oh, I thought that. I thought that was Jean Luc Godard. That was no, the no, no, it was something else. Can't remember, but that was obviously huge. Um, yeah, he's 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 one of the real giants of, uh, of film. He uh, he was 91. Uh, interestingly enough, he uh, he uh, apparently uh, chose to end his life uh, in Switzerland. Um, I think he was just, you know, I don't think he was suffering from any individual kind of life-threatening disease. I just think he so much, you know, complications of old age just got too much and he chose to end his life. Um, kind of a, a very Jean-Luc Godard thing to do. I think it has been a very unique and sort of opinionated person who does things his own way. I don't know how much you know about Jean-Luc Godard. He was uh, one of the leaders of the French New Wave, so everything from the 60s onwards, which was hugely influential for, for Hollywood. A lot of the a lot of the Hollywood directors, although the films they make weren't French New Wave, they all grew up watching those films and went, wow, we can do things differently in Hollywood. Let's go and do things differently in Hollywood. So you know, hugely interesting guy. He he was seen as at the forefront of like art house films, but he was a huge champion of classic Hollywood entertainment. So Hitchcock... Um, Howard Hawks, John Ford. He was kind of one of these people that made things like Alphaville and Abu Dhusufla were really ex- quite experimental films in a lot of ways, but he was um, his film education was classic old Hollywood, which I think is what resonated with everyone from John Carpenter to Scorsese and all of those people growing up. So, yeah, the end of a, a, a massive career. Not, not, not everyone loves his films. There was, in a, you know, sometimes he keeps moving pretentious, but he was uh, an incredibly, you know, hugely important figure in cinema. Have you, have you seen any of his films, mate? Um, no, I haven't. Um, I know you absolutely rant, rant and rave about them, how good they are. Um, but 
I, I've never. I, I always used to mix them up with Luke Besson. They're two totally different people. Yeah, very, very different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't love everything he's done, um, but he was a really interesting character, and he was really kind of strong views. You know, I, I just think pe- people with such strong views about the world and about making films are are the reason that cinema is interesting. You know what I mean? So you, you could yeah. hate you could hate his films, but it's still valuable that someone like him made the contribution he made. So. Um, a, a sort of a side, a, a sort of a less significant person overall in the world of film, but a very, very interesting person from the world of film is Leon Vitali died. Uh, not a name you anyone immediately recognises, uh, although he did have a, a role in Barry Lyndon, the Kubrick film, which we'll be discussing this month. Uh, he, after he had a, acted in a few things and, and worked in Barry Lyndon, he gave up his acting career to become Stanley Kubrick's assistant and documentarist. So he did pretty much everything for Kubrick for every film he did subsequent to um, Barry Lyndon. So he was scouting locations, you know, script editing, reviewing everything, and also documenting his life with Kubrick. And he did do a documentary about his uh, his life with Kubrick, which I'm probably going to dig into now. So uh, he passed away as well. Uh, anything else you saw in the news? Um, I can't remember. Did we speak about the whole Batgirl thing last month? Yes, we did, yeah, yeah how it's did. disappeared. There have been apparently kind of what they call them funeral or memorial screenings of it for like small audiences to actually see the, the film. You know, I think people who were in the film, people in the industry, like they got together and did a few special tiny screenings, but that is literally all that's going to ha- ever happen for that film. St- stuff I've seen, um, all is not apparently well with the upcoming film Don't Worry Darling. That's Olivia Wilde's second film as director. There was rumours of tension on set. Troubled production, people not speaking to each other at the premiere, and a very odd story denied by everyone. Uh, it should be added that Harry Styles spat at Chris Pine uh, at the premiere. Um, uh, yeah, I've seen stretch, the video. Strange I'm not entirely stuff. sure what's going on there. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. It's so just... I watched the video, and they've both denied that it happened. Yeah, but it does look like it happened, and Chris Pine's reaction's a little bit odd. Mm. It's it's always weird these things because even if something did happen or there's an incident or anything bad, when the premiere's on and they're promoting the film, there's almost like this un, this little unwritten rule for, for actors to say, look, push the film, promote the film. Do you know what I mean? Keep yeah. a united front. And if there's if there's going to be stories about about it, it'll be it won't come out yet. Do you know what I mean? You've seen yeah. it all the time. I remember uh, one of the actors in Batman and Robin. Chris, what's his name? The bland one who played Robin. Um, that disastrous one with George Clooney's Chris Batman. Chris O'Donnell. Chris O'Donnell, that's the one. In the interviews, he's going, oh, I'm enjoying playing Robin in the Batman films. If the films start to suck, then I'll stop doing them. And uh, and seeming to be promoting the film when he was doing it, but then afterwards it was like, yeah, that was shit. I'm not doing that again. Do you know what I mean? So you don't, you don't get the full story now. You'll get it later if there is a story. Uh, Jane Fonda has announced that she's in chemotherapy for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. That might have been it. That might have been yeah. a big bit of news. Yeah, yeah. We obviously wish her well. Um, she seems to be in good physical health, so hopefully, you know, she's been getting regular checkups and this chemo is going to sort it all out. Um, another kind of incredibly important figure in cinema, so fingers crossed for her. Um, this may not be news to anyone else, and that you might have seen this ages ago, but I finally saw the teaser trailer for Oppenheimer. Oh, that's out. Yeah, it's like a live, it's not live in the sense that you, you, you're watching the video live, but it's got a live ticker on it. So I watched it three days ago and it had a ticker on it that starts telling you exactly how long it is down to the minute or even second when the film gets released. And if you watch it three days later, it'll, it's 
it's it's got a different time for how long it is to do you know what i mean the ticker is live if you watch it in a few months time it'll say how much sooner it is till the film um so the details of this are the uh the film's been shot mostly in black and white oh no except except for all the atomic sequences so the atomic explosions the splitting the atom all of that stuff is in color oh no I'm and the main stuff it. is in black and white it's going to be shit <laughs> There's always something with Chris, uh, with Chris Nolan, that he's 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 always doing something different that uh, pushes the envelope in some way. So, uh, um, I mean, I'm not averse to a black and white film. It'll, the question will be whether this is a um, done for the sake of it or um, has a, a genuine kind of purpose for the film. We'll see. He'll have done it because he's not had a good fucking cinematographer since Wally Fisto left to do Transcendent, <laughs> and now he doesn't have to do a color palette on a fucking scene anymore. That'll be why. Yeah. We'll see. I'm still hopeful. Um, it's going to be shit. <laughs> in other film news, um, Francis Ford Coppola's film Megalopolis is finally getting a start date for filming. Uh, and Shia LaBeouf has been cast. Uh, that may make life interesting for the film after rumours that he was fired from Don't Worry Darling for toxic behaviour. Was it that he was fired or he basically was told he wasn't even going to be in it because of... he? The, Olivia Wilde said she was worried about the well-being of Florence Pugh. But by, by the accounts differ on why he left the production. Shia LaBeouf denies that it was his behaviour. Olivia Wilde says it was his behaviour. Um, but he was definitely on set and in it for a while, and uh, and then left the production. And I think it was Harry Styles who took over his role. Hmm. Um. But I mean, r- rumours of bad behaviour on set probably won't worry Coppola too much after he's worked with Marlon Brando, right? So we'll see how that goes. Megalopolis is this hugely ambitious production that Coppola's been trying to get done for almost 30 years. It was going to be something we do as a uh, as a one that got away because he's tried several times to do it. A couple of times it's collapsed. We might still try and do that as a, as a one that got away in future. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's big. I mean, Coppola doing his lifelong passion project. Even if it doesn't work, it's interesting that he's doing it. Yeah, I mean, he did also make Jack, so... <laughs> yeah, I mean, he did a lot of things in the 90s that were just a, a job of work, like he did a, a John Grisham film and stuff like that. This is this has been this has been the film that he did all... He did all those other films to try and raise the money for this film. So we'll see whether it's worth it. He should have just stuck it. to what every other director was doing and just done cocaine. <laughs> Although that would have made sense as to why he made fucking Jack. He's got an even more expensive habit than that, which is uh, owning a wine vineyard. So it's much more oh, expensive than being a cocaine addict. So <laughs> I think that's the news, unless you got anything else, mate. Um, no, I can't think of anything, no. So the other thing we tend to talk about uh, this uh, time of year are uh, new releases at the cinema. Um, I don't know, any new releases coming out caught your eye? No, I went to check the listings last night and there's fuck all. Jaws is back and Jackie Brown's 25th anniversary. Those were the top two listings at the cinema. And I went, oh, okay, it must be a slow month then. I, th- I think it is a slow month. Um, we've got a few things coming out. If we if we go from after the, the date that this film comes out, um, yeah. which is the 25th of September and the month from that, that's what we normally do, there is uh, the story. Uh, Smile, which is a horror film about demonic possession. I saw a trailer for it the other night. It's exactly what you expect one of those films to be. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. I mean, if it, you know, so many of those films are just so typical, you know, that they all do exactly the same thing. So if you like that sort of thing, then it's there. Go and see it. That's the 28th of September. There's a uh, 
an anime coming out about a cursed dancer um, called Inuo. Um, it's been featured at festivals and things. It looks like it's one of those... Uh, it looks a bit Studio Ghibli, although Studio Ghibli doesn't officially exist anymore, but it looks like those the people who made those films, have, some of them at least, have been involved in this. Um, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, which is kind of oh, a... fuck off. It's, it's a silly sounding name, but it's a period comedy. It's got Jason Isaacs, Leslie Manville, Isabel Huppert. Um, it's uh, a, com- a comedy drama with, with a good cast. I've, I don't really know that much more about it. Um, a film called Flux Gourmet. I don't even know what that is. That is, uh, it's a comedy horror. Uh, this guy, Peter Strickland, he is a really weird director. I saw the last film of his. I was really looking forward to it. It was about a red dress. It was called In Fabric, which I loved for about 40 minutes, and then it descended into being completely shit. He does these weird kind of almost ambient films. So that's his latest one. Um there's a a new version of Matilda is out. This is the you know when they they've done this before. They do the film and then they do a musical of the film and then they do a film of the musical. Why? Like, just let it be. Yeah. So again, that sort of thing isn't for me. It's not quite the same as just doing a remake. Um, we'll see if that's what what's that. Sixth of October, a film is out called Corsage, and that is a um, it's a fictional account of the later years of Empress Elizabeth of Austria. Um, I don't really know who that is, but it looks like a sort of period, uh, 19th century period drama set in Austria, which is a really interesting time. So maybe that'll be an interesting film. Um, Amsterdam is coming out. This is the latest uh, David O. Russell film, and it's got all the usual David O. Russell people, plus Margot, Margot Robbie and John David Washington. Mm. As as with all of these things, he always assembles a cast of really good actors. You know, um, Andrea Riseborough, Chris Rock, Anya Taylor-Joy, uh, Mike Myers is in it. He always does some funny, interesting stuff, Michael Shannon. His his films are full of actors I like, but usually doesn't result in a film I like. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I enjoyed The Fighter, but I didn't enjoy it because of the direction. I just thought the acting was very good. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you could say that's down to the direction, but it was just like a, a lifetime performance from Christian Bale. And I thought, other than that, the film wasn't very special. American Hustle was shit. Silver like, sorry, Silver Linings Playbook was also shit. I have no, I- no idea how that got all the, the yeah. I mean, I, 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 I like a good director. I liked Three Kings that he did, <laughs> um, but since then I found his films to be really very sort of mannered and and odd, and he seems to be quite a pretty horrendous character to work with um and i think the fighter is a a, a a good story in its own right that he for once managed not to get in the way of so so there's that uh also coming out on the 7th of october is the woman king i don't know if you've seen any trailers for this or heard about this no i haven't so this is really interesting this is a historical action drama um, and it's uh, sort of an alternative history with some basis in fact. I don't know a lot more than that, but it's almost like about uh, sort of a, a queen of a tribe of female warriors sort of fighting their colonizers in the 19th century. Viola, it's like an action drama. Viola Davis is playing a sort of pretty hardcore action role. She looks really good in the trailer. Oh, I think I've seen this. Yes. Lashana Lynch from The Last Bond film is in it. John Boyega is in it. Um a couple of other sort of interesting actors that I've seen from other films. Um, 
I mean, I'll obviously wait for the, I might wait for the reviews, but it looked quite interesting in the trailer. Like if it's, if, it, if it's all worked, that could be really, really good. So we'll see how that one is. That, that one definitely caught my attention when I saw the trailer. Um, Stephen Frears has a new film with Stephen Coogan out called The Lost King, which is a sort of, sort of dramatized story about finding Richard III. It feels like a fairly minor story to me as far as stories go. Um, the Legend of Mauler Jat, which is a, a an Indian film about a, 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 a sort of a vengeance story about warriors in kind of a period period era Punjab. One or two of these Indian films are coming out now. They they, they do look quite interesting. There's a film called RRR which came out this year, which I want to catch up with. Some of these, you know, they they they, they I think they're trying not they're trying to break that kind of Bollywood stereotype where they break for a ten minute kind of musical you know musical uh, number. Do you know what I mean? And actually kind of use the you know the the full force of Bollywood to make very international films. So see what that's like. Uh, Doctor Who Am I? It's a documentary about uh, a screenwriter who is uh, from Doctor Who. I, I don't really know what that's trying to be. It's got a slightly high concept. Um, twist in the tale about imagining him being dragged into back into the Doctor Who world, but it's really just intended to be a film about Doctor Who and fandom, a documentary. Uh, there's The Banshees of uh, Ina Sharon. I may have pronounced that wrongly. It's another Martin McDonough film. Uh, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson reunite after In Bruges. Um, it's an independent film. It's won some awards at the festivals. It's, got, it's highly rated. Um, you've not always liked everything Martin McDonough's done, but, I mean, those two together on screen is always... Uh, has its potential to be um, interesting. I loved In Bruges. In Bruges is one of my favourite films of all time and then was very excited for Seven Psychopaths, which was utter shit. And I've I've not actually sat down properly to watch Three Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. So I really like that. I thought that was really good. Yeah, it got, that the cinema. that's got also got a very good cast. So I don't know, I just I, I thought Seven Psychopaths was just a disgrace of a film. I didn't I, I don't know how it got made into a film. I see I haven't seen Seven Psychopaths, but I understand your cons- your problem you had with it was that it it, it 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 was that they they some people called it like an attempt to be modern day tarantino it's that thing where there is that you've when you do that kind of violent but also played for laughs you've got to get the tone right in any i think what you were saying to me is that he got the tone of that right in in bruges and totally wrong in um in your view in uh uh, uh seven psychopaths um, Three Billboards Outside of Ming, Missouri isn't in that space at all. It's a totally different style of film. I don't think you would have anything to worry about about him. I don't think he can possibly have done any of the things in that film that that made Seven Psychopaths not work for you, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Um, Halloween Ends is out on the fourteenth of October. Obviously, October is often the um, uh, the era of your um, uh, you know, your Hollywood films, uh, horror films. Uh, that is the third part of this kind of latter-day trilogy of Halloween films with Jamie Lee Curtis and the Michael Myers story. Um, a very weird uh, children's animation called Lyle Lyle Crocodile is about. It's literally about a talking crocodile. It goes to uh, it goes to New York. It's like a comedy animation for kids. Uh, Emily is out on the fourteenth of October, which is a some sort of indie drama about a. a a rebel, a woman rebelling in in period, uh, sort of Jane Austen era. I don't know any more about it than that. Black Adam comes out. That's probably one of the biggest ones uh, on the twenty first of October, which is um, Dwayne Johnson as a DC superhero who's been bestowed with the mighty powers of the Egyptian gods. 
Um, obviously, this is a diverse superhero because it's one of the one of the you know very small number of superheroes of color that come from the big um, you know original comedy era. I don't really know anything about this or whether there's been any stories or whether this is any good, mate. I don't know if you've seen anything about it. Yeah, I'm kind of losing hope in superhero films. They, they, I mean, Mar- been downhill since um, other than Spider Man, all of them have been shit since uh, Avengers Endgame. Yeah, I mean, all the reasons that you might be sort of interested in the film and, and how it turns out. I mean, the director, oh god, the director's done some stuff I quite like, like The Shallows. His name is Jean Collet Serra, but he also did Orphan, which was dog shit and unknown. Do you remember that Liam Neeson film you watched, Unknown, where we went, actually, this is so boring, um, but I want to know what the twist ending is. So we turned it off and read the Wikipedia page instead of watching the film. I don't even remember that, mate. Like, yeah, I think I've blocked that entire experience out of my brain. <laughs> yeah, it's incredibly dull film. Um, but yeah, so the biggest sort of the big blockbuster is Black Adam. Other than that, it's, it is. There's Halloween Ends, there's Black Adam, and there's a few other kind of potentially interesting films but i think you're right there's not anything anything massive this month coming out it seems to be it's going to get busier from about november uh, onwards because there's the black Panther sequel which i think is real make or break time and then a lot of the films that are going to be the um that the oscar contenders come out after that and avatar the way of water in december and it feels like this is the this is when they just bury films this period i don't think it's not it's not a massive month for film releases so yeah, so that's that for like the films coming out of the cinema. Um, in terms of films uh, we watched this month, uh, what have you watched this month? Anything new? Um, I got around to watching Thor: Love and Thunder. And what did you think of it? Uh, it's a bit shit. Isn't it? um, it's. Did you have to pay for that? Was that like a pay no, on Disney, top? Pay on top? No, 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 no. It's just on Plus, Disney Plus. Just released it for Disney Plus. They right. fucked that. I'd have, I'd have been getting my money back. Um, yeah. It's. It, it, it's. I think it really does suffer from the fact that it's not Thor Ragnarok. But what's disappointing is that Taika Waititi can be so funny, and he's so funny in what we do in the shadows, and his and the writing that he's obviously contributing to that show because obviously he doesn't take as much of a directing role in in the show, but it's still so funny because of his writing. I felt like this film was just so poorly written. Mm. I think Russell Crowe's accent is. <laughs> It's it's almost as offensive as Lawrence Olivier blacking up for Othello. Like that's how bad that accent was. That was not good. I thought it was very interesting that he's managed probably to offend Greek people and Italian people at the same time. Because huh. <laughs> he's obviously he's trying to do a Greek accent, and I think his dialogue coach was probably not a dialogue coach. He was probably just watching episodes of Harry Enfield for the Stavros character. That seems to be what he based his accent on. Hmm. But his, his some of his accent work can be really dodgy like when he uh, when he was in that uh, Universal the Mummy thing and apparently he can't do a Cockney accent we found out in that film and in this one he keeps dropping from a Greek accent into an Italian accent uh, and but also a shit Italian accent and it was just like I mean, I, I mean, I, I thought that there were the elements of a film that could have really worked and for whatever reason it ended up not working and ended up being um, just uh, so many things in it fell flat and we do have we do have a real we've got a CGI crisis in uh, in 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 modern films, haven't we? I didn't think the CGI was that bad the whole way through, but I did notice some really poor moments. Yeah, it, it like is. The, it's the, the poor moments, the, isn't with it? With the baby, yeah, at the start when baby Thor is you know being shown 
I don't mm. know if that's much of a spoiler as if anyone gives a fuck and you can totally tell it's a CGI baby. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the only good thing about it was Christian Bale's performance. Yeah, it's sort of... He, his performance is very good. That the, I think it, it highlighted other problems in the film though, didn't it? Because you can do... Um, I, I suppose it, it it's it's the nearest thing to Kate Blanchett's character in in Thor Ragnarok, right? Because so much in Thor Ragnarok is being played at least slightly for laughs or, or comedically. Like Jeff Goldblum is one of the main antagonists, but Kate Blanchett's character is pretty serious. Do you know what I mean? And the balancing act of her serious, you know, she's a serious threat and she's got serious grievances against, you know, the the the, the family of Asgard. Yeah, the balancing act they did for Ragnarok was like just right where they got her versus Jeff Goldblum that they managed to balance those two things really well in yeah. this the fact they they didn't balance that at all so you've got Christian Bale doing I agree a very solid creditable you know se- you know he's he's the serious threat he's got serious motivation and I just don't think they managed to con- to control the rest of the film so it was always a uh, as good as he was it was always a lurch in tone from everything else across to that which is not a criticism of Christian Bale. I think it's a criticism of how the film just didn't... I don't know, did... I mean, do you think Taika Waititi was trying as hard this time? Do you think it just no. didn't work this time? Or do you think no. he just went, oh, fuck it, we'll do the same thing as we did last no, time? No, it wasn't. It was... Yeah, it was just a bit... It was just a bit lame. It wasn't... I think he's... I think Taika Waititi's really struggled with the expectations of action set pieces... And those kind of things, I don't think he's that kind of director. You can kind of tell, but no, I, I, I would not recommend this film. And yeah, it was, it was just a shame um, that it wasn't as good. Yeah, as it, it is a shame. But I think it's just because of the weight of expectation. But um, other than that, other films that I've watched, I'm gonna have a little peruse through. Um, why, why do you have I've a peruse? Watched. Why don't I do one of the ones I saw at the cinema, which was Three Thousand Years of Longing? Uh, you were quite excited to see that. I was excited to see it. Now, I have to say, I did see that the reviews were a bit mixed, and I did see the um, what the story was about. It's it's based on a very literary short story by A.S. Bio, who's a brilliant writer, but as I say, very literary. Quite, uh, you know, she's not in, you know, she's not interested in writing cinematic stories. She's interested in whatever the story she's trying to write, uh, and it's a modern day kind of story about the genie in the bottle. Basically, a gin is what the the actual proper name from you know the, the Middle East for genies genie is what some you know some white westerner thought did you say genie right it's a genie uh, they actually should call them gins um and i'm not sure i would say i'm going to rush out and see that particular storyline if it wasn't the fact that george miller had done it and idris elba and tilda swinton were in it but the fact that he'd done it and they were in it went yeah i'm going to watch that um in the story tilda swinton is an academic specializing in stories folk tales and overall storytelling tradition she basically knows all the fairy tales, all the stories, all you know, all the creation myths and everything else, and she studies the common themes what that tells us about society. So she knows all the stories, all the myths. Um, this is something that George Miller is interested in. Um, while this is nothing like his Mad Max films, um, he often bookends those films with like prologues or epilo- epilogues that imagine the story of Max as being handed down in that oral storytelling tradition. Do you know what I mean? Like it's the future. There's no records anymore, so we're we're keeping the story alive by telling it, handing it down generation to generation. So he's obviously interested in that storytelling tradition. Um, Tilda Swinton's in a conference at Istanbul, haunted by visions which suggest there's troubling her somewhere. She picks up an old bottle in a bazaar. She washes it in a hotel room and out comes a gin, played by Idris Elba. 
he says he's been imprisoned for thousands of years and can only be freed if she makes three wishes. But she's she knows all the three wishes stories and they're always cautionary tales. You make three wishes, but they don't turn out the way you want. That's how those stories always pan out. Um, so she doesn't want to make the wishes. Um, and the djinn says, you need to make those wishes, otherwise I'm stuck. And while they decide how to break that deadlock, they tell each other the story of their lives. So she tells her story, which is a kind of a, kind of ordinary human story. But the djinn tells these extraordinary stories about the three times he's been imprisoned um, by the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon, by Ottoman emperors in Istanbul in the kind of Middle Ages, and by a 19th century Turkish woman who was basically the new Leonardo da Vinci. And in those flashbacks, George Miller shows off all these colourful flourishes. You see King Solomon riding out of the desert to meet the Queen of Sheba, and you find out these dramatic stories about the djinn's passions and loves and, and, and why being locked in the bottle was so traumatic for him. Then in, in the future, they, they fall in love, and the genie, or the djinn, as it were, sorry, um, is trying to adjust to modern life and the, you know what, comparing it to the, the things he's seen in the past. Um, now, I really enjoyed this film. Uh, and I think the reason for that is I just watched the Sandman TV series on Netflix, which I'd really enjoyed. And I was totally in the mood for something with this kind of vibe. It's not the same as the Sandman, but it's fantastical and it's about telling stories. Uh, so I was definitely in the mood for it. Uh, it looks amazing. It sounds amazing. The score by um, Tom Holkenborg, aka uh, Junkie uh, XL, is fantastic. Um, what hurts it for me a little bit is that when the story moves into the modern day, it seems really quite mundane. I think that the listener who kind of wrote in about it, it seems quite mundane and a bit of a come down compared to King Solomon and Sheba, compared to the middle of the Ottoman Empire and all of that stuff. It, right. it lacks a bit of a visual flourish to show you the modern day. Yeah. It, maybe it should have been the genie flying around the world and seeing the world in its modern something something to kind of give it a, that that punch and also it, the, the the resolution of the story is a bit it's a bit flat compared to what came before so it's an enjoyable watch um i think a lot of people are probably just going to wait for it to come out on streaming i think if you like the sandman and you're interested in story you know that storytelling and and, and those flashbacks and uh, it looks ravishing and and the score is one of the best of the year um so I liked it, but didn't love it. And I can understand why some people weren't super keen on it, if you see what I mean. Uh, yeah, it, it sounds like one of those ones that I'd be annoyed if I paid to go to the cinema, but if I just stuck it on, I might enjoy it more. You know, one of those ones. Yeah, stick it on if you're, if you're in the mood. If you've watched Sandman and you really liked all of that, um, that kind of that vibe of... Because the way I don't know if you've seen the Sandman, but the way the, the, way the Sandman plays out is that it's... Um, it's like tales from the Sandman. It's like sometimes they just dig in and go, here's something... That, that happened to the Sandman and he goes down to hell and he meets the devil and he's got a duel with the devil and it plays back to other other things that, that, that the Sandman has seen before. Um, it's got a lot of that vibe. So when you're in the mood for that, this is really nice. But just, it's almost like relax and enjoy it, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't quite hit home as well as it could have done. Still enjoyed yeah. it though. Did does that, it have Metallica in it? Does it have Metallica in it? No. Why? Did you think it did? One of us should do. Enter Sandman. Ah, no. No, but, but then that, that series is shit then, isn't it? <laughs> to be fair, the Sandman was written before Metallica did that song. Um, and it would, it would it would jolt you out. If you like Metallica in fantasy, then Stranger Things is for you. No, yeah, but even then that was the wrong song. Because you know what song that should have been? Tell me. Enter Sandman, for fuck's sake. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, 
No, and then I've just found the other thing that I watched this month. Yeah, um, I, I hope I hope that would uh, give you time to do that. It was um, the new Fantastic Beast, The Secrets of Dumbledore. Did that actually come out this year? Uh, I think it came out in like January or something. All right, so so it's a it's a film of twenty twenty two. I'm looking ahead to when we do the awards awards season. Um, it counts. What the fuck are you talking about? Oh yeah, they've really they've really let themselves down with it's, this. It's, I genuinely it's, it's think been, it's been a, a bit of a damp squib, isn't it? All of that. All of the Harry Potter films, in my opinion, apart from Prisoner of Azkaban, have been really underwhelming. I think they've they've got this really rich universe that they could have explored so much and fleshed out, and it's I think it's just kind of descended into loads of like petty squat. Well, the, I think the Harry Potter. Um, Eight films were um, just petty squabbles between teenagers, and then for the last three films, it was like, "Oh yeah, by the way, there's this really big bad guy who's going to kill everyone coming in." Um, I th- I, th- I feel like they really let themselves down there. But these these Fantastic Beast films have just been a whole other level of shit. Mm. They've they've they started them in you know nineteen twenties New York, which you think, okay, cool, it's not Britain, but we're getting to see all these uh, witches and wizards. It's America. And they've just they've not really done much with it. They've done three films, and I had I had no I'd completely forgotten that they made a second one. Hmm. I just, nothing has happened in these films. Just, they've just been really just underwhelming. It's I just, think I think there's so much money to be made from the films, and there is a a big ready-made fan base who um, it's uh, it it saves you a lot of time if you just give them exactly what they want and pander to them a little bit. And I think that kind of uh, it. The, they they take so many shortcuts just to go here you go give me your money where instead of because yeah. the 1920s New York is a really fascinating setting um, all of those great Art Deco buildings and everything it's it you know it's an opportunity to a look really interesting the way they try they they, they almost kind of conjure up like an old world England and Scotland in in the original Harry Potter films you know the the steam train and the you know the old buildings and the old castles and then it's like you open a secret door and the wizarding world's inside it, and that 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 in, it gives you an opportunity to do some really interesting stuff. That well, I, I agree with you. I mean, I didn't, I haven't even bothered with apart from the. How many have they done now? Is it the second or the third? The Secrets of Dumbledore is the third one. I've only the seen second one is Crimes of Grindelwald. Yeah, the I've first only, one was just Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. I've seen one, and after that, I just went. I don't need to see any more of this. It's like, eh. See, I quite like the first one. I actually I, quite like the first one. I quite, I quite liked it, but I just didn't feel compelled to watch any more. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But there you go. Um, anything else? You catch anything recent on streaming or anything like that? Or? No, nothing. No, it's been a bit of a quiet month. Been finally got the um, the message to watch Squid Game, so I'm watching that again. Yeah, yeah. Then... I'm like one, two, or two episodes into that. I want to, want to get get back into that. Yeah, it's really good. And then. Um... Been watching House of the Dragon and Rings of Power, so it's been more of a series. It's been quite a big month for a TV yeah, shows yeah. compared to films. I haven't. I'm, I'm up to date <laughs> week. I'm up to date week by week with House of the Dragon on Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. I'm not started that yet. Uh, I'll let you watch. It. I won't tell you how I think about it. Mm. I mean, I I found House of the Dragon. It's like I like it, but it's like Game of Thrones light a little bit. Are you joking? I mean, I I enjoyed it, but I I don't feel like it's got quite the same like epic. You know, no, I think it's I think it's um a stronger start than the first season of Game of Thrones. Interesting, and it's 
much better than season six to eight of mm. season thrones of season thrones of game of thrones already i really think matt smith is carrying the show um it's really interesting to see more of the targaryens because we've only ever seen daenerys and we all know how that went but mm. yeah it's not light it's uh the first episode they've got a cesarean up the way mm-hmm. that's yeah. not light that's... yeah I, I, I don't i don't i don't i don't mean light in terms of it's kind of an easygoing story i just meant i, oh. I, I, I didn't i didn't feel like it had um uh, I don't know. I I I didn't feel that m- many of the characters had uh, shown their you know, you know, deepest darkest sides just yet. If you see what I mean. Yeah. Um. But look, I, it's interesting that you're you know you're one hundred percent on 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 board with Matt Smith. I've, I've seen reviews that aren't aren't as keen on him. I'm enjoying it, and I'll keep watching. It, I have to say, I don't really have any real complaints. You know. Um. Well, hang on. Are you up to date with House of the Dragon? I, th- I may not have seen this week's actually. So you know the sequence from the episode where he's about to, he's about to go in, into battle. This isn't a spoiler because it's Game of Thrones. It's always going to be battle. If you watch that back from the moment he's like he's been given like a bit of paper like from the king, from that moment to the end of that battle sequence, which is a good twelve minutes, I think he doesn't yeah. say a word. He doesn't speak a word, and I think that's really phenomenal acting from Matt Smith. I think it was really, really good. I might go back and have another I think people episode, are just, maybe. They think people are just better because they've invested a lot of time and money into this House of the Dragon when they just wanted them to remake Season 8, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I'd, I would I would not... I, you mentioned at the start people getting angry at um, Hobbits of Colour. I'm not angry at the Hobbits of Colour. I'm angry at just how bad the Rings of Power is. It's really shit. Yeah, I mean, it's and, and really, really that's the bad. thing. I I always hesitate to get into these discussions because, like, it's like the the Little Mermaid film that's coming out with a with a, a a young black woman playing the mermaid. I don't mind them having a black girl as a mermaid. I mind another bloody Little Mermaid film. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I mean, and, and I think it's I just don't. It's like the Ghostbusters remake. I thought that was shite, but I don't want to get into it with all the people who hated it because it had women in the main parts. Like, that's not the problem. No, well. That- to touch on that Little Mermaid thing, if you if you were, if you went on Twitter, you'll have seen loads of these reactions from like yeah. young black kids seeing a black mermaid and having these really wholesome reactions to seeing a you know a black face playing a really iconic character, which is good and it shows the good that films and Disney can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but to go quickly go back to the Rings of Power before we properly get into this uh, the into the podcast, I I don't know what what's gone wrong with this because. It's. It should have been. It should have been a breeze. Mm. It should have been so easy to get people on board. And I'm actually finding myself, you know, when they're not called hobbits anymore, they're called harfits, but they're the same thing. Mm. They're a little bit different. And um, but I'm actually finding myself fast forwarding through their scenes because there's no, there's no soul. There's no, there's no draw to the story of these little these hobbits anymore. That I'm, I'm genuinely, I've got no interest in the story. I'm probably missing very important plot details, but I see them come on screen. And I go, <sighs> and I, I fast forward it. I fast forward it to the other bits with, um, with Galadriel and um, Elrond because I'm more interested in those characters. And I, I don't know how you manage that because when you go back and watch the Lord of the Rings films, you don't do that with Sam and Frodo or Merry and Pippin. You're drawn to the entire thing, and those films, like if you watch the extended editions, are like three and a half to four and a half hours long. So I don't know how you managed to lose my attention when we've not even had four hours of episodes yet. Mm. That's that that I, that's that sounds like a huge missed opportunity because um, 
like you say, I mean, I, I'm, I mean, I'm bored with the, with the new kind of uh, House of the Dragon series, and maybe I was being a little, you know, maybe I'm just impatient. Maybe I should just let the characters kind of yeah, reveal themselves yeah, I, I know to me a bit mean. more. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy with what they're doing, and I'm happy with what they've set up. And you know, there is, you know, George R. R. Martin has laid out a lot of background to go and inhabit as a story. And Tolkien did the same. Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, but there's lots of references in his work to the history of 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 that setting. That there's plenty of room for you to go and find good stories. So it's a missed opportunity if they haven't pulled it off. They've got no excuse. And um, but I think it's again, it's I think it's another example of do it, get it out to the fans. Uh, I don't know. Maybe people are losing their touch because that you, you used to be able to rely on a on a, a, a TV series to get a showrunner in to go right. This is the story. This is going to work. And you know, the guy did Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul knows how to do it. Vince Gilligan, you know, he well, manages. He manages to sustain a narrative over however many episodes. But the thing and is, that, that's the skill. It's making the story work. You know, but that's the double edged sword of a TV show. You have the advantage that a film doesn't, where you can have. Stranger Things has had nearly five seasons now, and those characters are all like fleshed out. Things, yeah. So you know they're all they've been properly like developed. Oh no, I've got sorry, we've got an interruption, guys. The dog's here. Hello, Obi. Hello, Obi. Sorry, where was I? That so you've got you can have five seasons of Stranger Things, and all those characters are fleshed out, but people don't pay to go to the cinema to watch TV shows. Mm -hmm. So if people get bored of it, they just turn it off. They change Mm -hmm. the channel. So I know they would be pay subscriptions to Netflix and Amazon and stuff like that, but if you're not interested you can in the immediately TV show, you flick onto something else. You don't have to watch it and you don't pay like a ticket to go and see it. So if people don't like the Game of Thrones show, they've already spent nearly a billion dollars um for five seasons. That's the rights and the the you know, the production mm-hmm. costs that they've estimated mm-hmm. for um for the show and it's already boring four episodes in. So, you know, it you can't just Go yeah. well, we've got loads of time to flesh out these characters. If you've got people bored of hobbits three episodes in, then you you've, you've got, lost. Yeah, you've got the, you've got to resist the temptation to. I mean, there was that. Do you remember that that phrase Netflix bloat? It says this is twelve episodes long because because you felt like it, but it, there's only eight episodes worth of story in there. There's, there's yeah. always a risk of that. The thing is, I I have very little sympathy for the showrunners because the skill sets to to sustain a serialized narrative are hundreds of years old. Yeah? Yeah. Dickens, Austin, Tolstoy, uh, some of the greatest writers of all time, they serialized their books in, in, in periodical publications and you would read the story and you would buy the next issue to, to carry on with the story. The, the great TV series are like great novels. They are, they are, they are essentially serials, yeah? The, the, the skill sets are there for going back to the Napoleonic War, right? So if you have studied and worked out how it works, you should be able to do it. And if you don't do it with all the money behind you and an interesting property and a ready-made audience, then it's on you. Yeah. I'm a bit hardline about it. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, that's for our uh, upcoming TV-based podcast, which we haven't got time to make, <laughs> so that's why, we, that's why we squeezed it in here. Um, I have one more film that I went to see at the cinema. Okay. Uh, Crimes of the Future. This is the new David Cronenberg film where he's going back to his body horror roots. Um, I have a strange relationship with David Cronenberg's films. I absolutely love him as a director. He is one of the best there is, in my humble opinion. I've been waiting forever for this new film to come out, and I booked on straight away to go and see it. Like, when's it out? Where's it out? I'm going. 
At the same time, I'm often apprehensive watching his films because of what he's going to put me through. He puts his audiences through a lot. He's quite extreme in a lot of his films. And that's been enough for me to delay watching these films sometimes. Sometimes I see what his film is about. I go, oh, I'm not, can I do that? And I end up watching them on video because I was, you know, delaying going to see it. Do you know what I mean? And I thought, I can't do that. I've only seen two of his films at the cinema. He's 79 years old. It's been eight years since his last film. He might not make another one. I've got to go and see this. So I nutted up and went to see it. But I was quite nervous as I was sitting in my seat. Um, Just not because I wasn't sure if it was going to only be good because it's like, what's he going to do to me? I heard there were walkouts at the premiere. What's going on? Um, So this film shares a title with one of his earliest films, but it's otherwise completely unrelated. It's set in a decaying future where humans' bodies are changing. New and unknown organs are developing inside people's bodies. And I don't mean like a third kidney. I mean, a new organ grows inside their body and goes, I don't know what that is or what it does. It's brand new. What is going on? Humans are turning into something completely, completely new. Viggo Mortensen is in the lead as a man who is, whose body is constantly growing, these new organs. Um, and it, you know, new hormones are showing up in a system. His body's changing. And he works as a performance artist, having these org- organs surgically removed in front of an audience. The surgery is performed by his partner, Leah Seydoux. They have like a very sort of intense relationship that's part, you know, sexual relationship, although sex is different in the future. Um, Part, you know, creative, they work together. Um, There's also a new police division investigating these increasing changes to human biology because they're worried it's a threat. The government's trying to regulate this disturbing new development with a, a new organs registration department where Kristen Stewart's character works, but they're really strange people who may have their own hidden agendas. Uh, and there's also underground groups uh, who, you know, may be violent and are either for or against this accelerated evolution. So this is about, you know, pollution, surgery, dystopian futures, political extremism, human evolution. It's got a really shocking and dark open scene, opening scene. It's very tough. Um, it's got like a quote which kind of is very Cronenberg. It says, surgery is the new sex. There's scenes where people essentially have sex with each other by um, cutting themselves open with scalpels on a on a, a, a specially designed table. Talking about? Um, it, it really riffs on a lot of his other films like Naked Lunch, Dead Ringers, Videodrome, The Fly and Crash. And in a way, it's kind of a meditation on those films. It's almost, it gives you the feeling while you're watching it that all of these strange horrors he's created over the years are actually predicting the way the human race is heading. So it's really, really kind of messes with your mind. Um, it also ties together his body horror films with his more art house films because, you know, there's like a you know modern art, you know, an artist in that elite society kind of into it. I mean, I loved it. A lot of people will hate it, uh, like all Cronenberg films. Um, I don't think it's quite up there with his best, but it's a fine way to sign off on his body horror years. And it might even be the way he signs off on his career as a whole. He might not make another movie. This might be his last one. So I'm glad I went to see it at the cinema. It was really weird and freaky and disturbing in all the ways that you want it to be if you're a Cronenberg fan. Um, Probably not for everyone. Definitely not for everyone, in fact. I don't think it's quite as shocking or extreme as Crash. Um, but it's but it's it's kind of up there. Um, and very quickly, I saw a new release on streaming Day Shift, that Jamie Foxx thing where he plays a vampire hunter, uh, and that is completely meh. It's a rehash of Buffy and Blade. You know, there are two kinds of Netflix films, right? There's Okja to Five Bloods, Beast of No Nation, and while I wasn't super keen on it, The Irishman, where a good filmmaker gets money from Netflix to make their film, and you think, great, Net- without Netflix, that film wouldn't have been made, right? The other type of film is where someone says, oh, let's make a Netflix film, and no, no one really cares about the end result, whether the story makes any sense, whether you care about the characters or anything else. They stick it out, you put it on, and you go, eh. 
that you know that wasted an hour and a half. What's next? Uh, I mean, maybe you know, maybe you'll love it, but I, I mean, I like vampire hunter stories, so it's not like I'm so you know touchy that I wouldn't watch one unless it's an absolute classic. But this just phew, didn't really do it for me. Not even uh, with Snoop Dogg as a as a stone vampire hunter. Um, you know, dull. Wasn't really cool. Yeah. So, so that, those are the new films I watched this month. Um, I mean, have you have you fulfilled your resolution to try and watch more films? Because you, you've watched a few there. Um, two. You what? You, but you, you, know, you watched sort of new films. You you know you you, you kept uh, you kept in touch with the film world. Is that in you my were, defense? Was, to be fair, I, I'm like the Internet Explorer of this podcast. So you go to the cinema and buy these. Uh, you pay tickets to go see the films, and then you say that was shit, and I go. Well, I'm not paying to go and see that. And then a month later, <laughs> like Internet Explorer, I give my opinion on the matter because I've not paid for it. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you've watched a few things. What was that? Thor: Love and Thunder, um, uh, the Fantastic, Fantastic Beast. Beasts. Yeah. So yeah, you've you've stayed in touch. There's yeah, just really... so many good TV shows, man. I'm the TV show guy of this film <laughs> podcast. I'm not gonna lie. I've been watching Welcome to Wrexham, She-Hulk, House of the Dragon, Rings of Power. Squid Game again. I yeah. might start the Sandman now that you've said it. You know what I mean? There's just so yeah. many good TV yeah, shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so my, my film resolution is uh, the ongoing project for this year, which is um, the Kubrick uh, 2022 Kubrick Odyssey, where I watch each of his films in order. We're getting towards the end now. Um, this is his film from 1975, Barry Lyndon. Um, so this is set in the 18th century. Uh, it is, oddly enough, Kubrick's third choice of film to make at this time. He was working on his version of Napoleon, which he couldn't quite get off the ground, and which we'll do as one that got away. When that didn't work, he said he was in the mood to do a period drama. He tried uh, to do Vanity Fair, based on uh, William uh, Makepeace Thackeray's film, uh, his novel. He decided that that wasn't right. That needs to be a TV series. Uh, Vanity Fair, you, you would have, you know, it's a ten-hour series, not a, not a film. So he didn't, he didn't do that. But he felt that this other Thackeray novel, Barry Lyndon, could be done as a two and a half hour movie um despite not as being's first choice of film to do at that time it is a masterpiece and it, it is my favorite kubrick film albeit i haven't seen eyes wide shut yet um it is it's about a down on a down on their luck aristocratic family in ireland uh they're like minor aristocrats have fallen on hard times uh barry is a young man in love with his cousin which is you know sort of happened a lot in those days He's too naive and arrogant to accept it when a wealthy English army officer wins her hand in marriage because the family needs the money. Um, he fights the man in a duel, wins, but has to flee the law because he's essentially shot a British army officer. Um, he runs off, joins the army, ends up in, in, in a war in Europe where his talent for ducking and diving gets him in trouble but creates opportunities for him to make his fortune. He ends up fighting on both sides of that war, deserts, takes up with a professional gambler running scams on the rich. Sees the opportunity to take over the name and title of a frail old English nobleman mm. who has a young trophy wife who's got her eye on him. Um, he uh, he replaces that English nobleman who who sort of dies of of his exertions, uh, and now he has a name and a title and a, a route into the English establishment. However, the kind of rogue that he is doesn't fit with the uh, the English establishment. It's partly his own flaws as a person. It's partly the way the system works, and you see his. Um, it's there are no spoilers here because the film telegraphs what's going to happen it's how it happens that matters you see his downfall in that system um it follows on from a clockwork orange uh in that it follows the story and development of a young man with kubik's dark sensibility but it's completely different apart from that um 
it uses a lot of classical music on the soundtrack the way his previous two films had done but it's really it, it is his idea of a period drama it uses um the history of the era as a backdrop for an individual narrative and character study but at the same time it illustrates what that period of history was like um the, the first half has more is more eventful it's basically barry succeeds because he can't hit a moving target he's always dodging onto his next scheme then he finds himself inside the english rigid, rigid class system and he struggles to to make his way there because he's not respectable enough for them um it is a masterful portrayal of decline and fall both of the aristocracy itself and of his main character the period detail detail is amazing you see 18th century battle scenes then kubrick style um a lot of effort went into realistic lighting of candle lit indoor scenes he used the cameras that nasa used to film the, the the moon landings to uh so that he could have natural light in in these candle lit scenes so there's nothing else like it nothing else looks like this the cinematography is stunning and won an oscar um Apart from that, it wasn't as loved uh, when it came out critically, but its reputation has grown and grown over the years. Um, that's co very common for Kubrick because he doesn't make his audience comfortable. Um, it's uh, it's beautiful. It's, um, it sort of distances you from the period because it reminds you how different the 18th century was from now, but it also really brings that era to life. And it, it, it's like staring into a window of it. It, it influenced lots of films, including uh, Ridley Scott's The Duelists. Ryan O'Neill is very good in the main part. He's kind of often seen as a bit of a bland leading man, but I've seen him carry two films that, you know, the, the, the Driver, which we talked about in the Walter Hill episode, and this, where an entire period epic sits on his shoulders because he's very good at playing this kind of person who doesn't have enough of his own character or background to succeed by legitimate means. Um, and can't play the aristocratic game and you watch him thrash around and, and, and succeed, sometimes fail sometimes. Um, and, and, and overlaying it all is uh, Kubrick's got this ruthless eye for human weakness, showing you what people are like. Um, the epilogue kind of tells you what Kubrick's trying to say about this film. I'm not going to tell you what, what, you know, what happens in the story. Watch it. It's got some amazing duels where you see how terrified the people fighting the duel are. It brings the whole story to life. It's beautifully made, performed, acted. The whole thing is, is, is gorgeous. Um, the, the title card says, It was in the reign of George III in the 18th century that the aforesaid personages lived and quarreled. Good or bad, handsome or ugly, rich or poor, they are all equal now. As in, they're all dead. Do you know what I mean? And none of this matters. It's, you know, more bleak Kubrick for you. Um, at the Oscars, it got quite a few nominations, but it missed out on Best Picture and Best Director. It won for Cinematography, Art Direction, Costume Design, and um, an Original Score, actually, even though a lot of classical music was on there. So it did well um, at the Oscars. Unluckily, it was the year of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, so that's why Best Director and Best Picture went elsewhere. Um, so Stanley Kubrick's bad luck at the Oscars continues, but at least he didn't lose out to another fucking musical, which is what happened the last couple of times. Um, and interesting, the, the one thing that ties it to our conspiracy episode is that um, the use of cameras that NASA used to film the moon landings was the birth of several conspiracy theories about Kubrick, which we'll cover in real two. There's a little teaser for you. Um, the other thing I, I always do when I do my uh, my uh, Kubrick entry for the month is I give you an impromptu top 10. And this one's pretty simple. It's films set in the 18th century of, of various kinds. Uh, and in no particular order, the impromptu top 10 of other 18th century films that uh, you should check out are Last of the Mohicans, Amadeus, Dangerous Liaisons, The Mission, Danton, Sense and Sensibility, The Favourite, Hamilton, the filmed um, production, A Tale of Two Cities, and Tom Jones. 
two other highly recommended films set in the area which I haven't seen but want to, which deserve a mention, uh, A Royal Affair and The Brotherhood of the Wolf. I just thought I'd mention those. Uh, another 18th century film you could have thrown in for shits and giggles was First Pirates of the Caribbean films. Hooray! So that's the um, that's the Kubrick film uh, for this month. Next month we're doing The Shining, one of his most talked go. about films, and I think that's going to be one where you weigh in a fair bit as well because you've seen that a number of times, haven't you, mate? Yeah, you, you the start of this year you were talking about films. Uh, I'm pretty sure you just made up in your own fucking head. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's uh, that's it. We are getting into the most sort of famous and recent and well known era of of Kubrick. Uh, we're well in that now. Um, did you want to add anything else to the roundup, mate? Uh, no, I think we've given the roundup a healthy rounding. So let's uh, let's just get into it. Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us haven't seen before, and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films, and we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films, from Richard Linklater's A Scanner Darkly to classic submarine drama Das Boat. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature, as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash double reel and click watch list for all the films on our list, and you can make recommendations there or on all the usual places on our socials. This month we're featuring one of the flagship political conspiracy thrillers of the 1970s by a director who specialised in them. Our classics and recommended feature for episode 29 is The Parallax View. So James, had you seen this film before or heard of it? Nope. Yeah, I mean, it is very much before your time. This is from like 1974. Like uh, it is a a film that was famous at the time and very much of its era. Um, it's directed by Alan J. Pakula. He's famous for All the President's Men, but actually did three very important conspiracy films in the 70s, now known as his Paranoia Trilogy. All the President's Men was the last of those three. Before that, he did Clute with Jane Fonda and this film, The Parallax View with uh, with Warren Beatty. In summary, a candidate for president of the United States is assassinated on top of the Space Needle in Seattle. It turns out that behind that assassination is a shadowy organization called Parallax, who specialize in you know political murder and essentially deciding who will be in power. Uh, they set about eliminating witnesses and investigative journalist Warren Beatty, who, who was there for the, for the murder, uh, goes and investigates uh, and goes into the dark heart of this uh, assassination uh, assassination corporation, shall we say. Um, the film is uh, influenced by really all the assassinations of the 60s. It's based on a novel which came out at the end of the 60s and is very much preoccupied by all of these shocking you know, murders of political figures like uh, JFK, uh, his brother Robert Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, uh, and uh, Fred Hampton of the Black Panthers, who was essentially shot in cold blood by the FBI. Um, so for you, James, you're into your history. So how much do you know about those assassinations of the 60s and the, the effect they had on America at the time? Um, Yeah, like I know of them. I know that the, the Kennedys were pretty much slaughtered um, for not being your traditional arseholes that wanted to just destroy the world. Um, and... Yeah, that had a massive effect in America. You know, it, it probably prolonged the Cold War longer than it needed to. Um, because I feel like JFK wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have been pulling the shit 
that um, subsequently happened in America for the in the following like years and decades to come. But yeah, yeah I know of them. I know about them. Yeah, I mean, the way it impacted films in this way is that uh, you, we, when we did uh, Doctor Strange Level, we touched on this to say that that was one of the first films of a very high profile that essentially took a big shit on all the things that were supposedly held dear in America. It's like, you know, you can trust the establishment, you can trust the government, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. Um, you know, the the values of like the the, the solid 1950s is, you know, and all of these things are, are you know, beyond reproach. And Kubrick said, well, here's me reproaching them. What are you going to do about it? And everyone went, yeah, you know what? Fuck those things. You know, and people started to doubt essentially the lies they've been told. And these assassinations that took place in the 60s, they really shook a lot of American people, a lot of people in the Western world to their core to say, this is, uh, you know, the, the people in charge maybe can't be trusted. The things we thought we could rely on, we can't. And there was a very paranoid feeling like, you know, what's the government doing to us? What, you know, and Nixon and Watergate was like the, the, the ultimate expression of that. This film came out while the Watergate um, uh, investigation was in full flow. Uh, and it's obviously playing back all of those murders and saying what's behind them. And uh, Warren Beatty plays a, a different character. I mean, how, how well do you know? I mean, how many what Warren Beatty films have you seen? I mean, his, his, his best years are before you before you were even born, mate. What what Warren Beatty films uh, do you, uh, have you actually personally seen? Um, I've not actually seen that many Warren Beatty films. I probably I probably have done. I just can't name one off the top of my head. Yeah, um, the name rings a bell. Um, he was he was he played uh, Clyde in Bonnie and Clyde in the sixties. He was hugely famous. You know that song "You're So Vain." I bet you think this song is about you. Huh. It was about him, among others. Some... He was. So uh, he's one of those ones who. Um, who like I've seen the name and everyone you know talks about Warren Beatty about being one of these like you know famous Hollywood figures, but I don't think I've actually seen anything he's been in. Yeah, I mean, if his if he's if he'd been an actor in the forties and fifties instead of the principally the sixties and seventies, although he did on you know carry on making films after that, he'd have been a classic matinee idol. He's this incredibly good-looking bloke who the camera loves. Yeah. But he's much more politically engaged than that. And by the time the 70s are coming around, matinee idols that are not what people are making movies of. But he was still like a huge star. And a lot of his films played on how attractive he was to women, all those things. But this film shows what he's interested in. This is a very untypical performance of his. He plays a scruffy, maladjusted loner, who investigative journalist who hasn't got a lot of money. Uh, he rubs people up the wrong way, but he's not going to give up until he gets the story. That's not a typical Warren Beatty role. So it's quite interesting if you've seen Warren Beatty and other things to see him do that. Obviously, that's all academic for you. Um, in my view, like all conspiracy thrillers that, that I like and that I've enjoyed, they're not just conspiracy films. They're, they... Uh, for example, when we talk about JFK, that's kind of like a, a, a like a historical drama about a conspiracy. Um, Blowout is like a Hitchcock's you know thriller about a conspiracy, and this is like a um, this is like a whodunit. This is like a crime investigation. Um, it's just that the crime that's being investigated is a conspiracy thriller. And what I mean by that is the way the film plays out is you investigate and you find things out, and as the nearer that the person gets to the close to the truth, the more things escalate. This could have been a private eye film. Do you know what I mean? Chinatown is about a conspiracy as well. And we'll talk about that in real two. But because it's about a private detective, people always see it as like a like a film noir style 
um, detective story. This is a detective story in many ways about a conspiracy. Is how I thought it, uh, how I saw yeah. it. Um, f- from your point of view, uh, what what is this film kind of like? What's your relation to this film, given that the seventies paranoia is like twenty odd years before you were born? What is it? What, this this atmosphere of paranoia was it something that you immediately got and said, "Oh yeah, I yeah. get it. Everyone's paranoid." Or, or was it? Did you did, did it take a little while to kind of tune into why people would think um, that about their the establishment and everything back then? No, I don't think it was there from the offset for me, but like you understood that's what they were trying to get across. Yeah, you know, later on, like throughout the film. Yeah, and. And it's obviously of, of a lot of the films we're going to discuss this uh, this pod. It's probably the most seventies stylistically. It's very very of its time. Were, were you able to get past that for this film, or is it just you know is it almost like a period drama for you? Um, I wouldn't say a period drama, but yeah, it's 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 of its time. It was written in nineteen and directed in 1974, so it's obviously that kind of film. But no, I wouldn't say it was like. It wasn't like one of those ones where it like feels pure dated and cheesy. Mm-hmm. You just know it was filmed in a different decade. Mm. <laughs> you know, one of those ones. Yeah, and I, it must have been a shock to you to see someone board a plane and then pay the stewardess from his seat and tell them where he's going and give his name, as opposed to what you have to do to get on a plane for a flight now. Yeah, I didn't understand that. Yeah, you, you literally used to be able to do that. Getting on a plane in, in, on, a, on an internal flight in America used to be like getting on a bus. And what, it would stop at different cities? Uh. Well, it was probably only one flight to one place, but you would say, you know, you, you would you, you would tell them that the reason they asked that is this is this your end de- destination because they want to know if they need to help you change planes at the airport or if you're just getting off. But literally, you could get on and you could hand over cash and say, yeah, well, I'm I'm going to Chicago, please. So that's mental. Yeah, it was also the period in which more planes were fucking hijacked than any other time in history. That was the that Imagine was the that shock. was the terrorists <laughs> that was the terrorist move of choice, uh, and it's why a lot of those security changes happened. So, I mean, what, what did you think of the film? You know, t- when you were watching it, um, yeah, it was it was good. It was uh, it was quite thrilling. I mean, the I, cent- found, I thought it was quite thrilling for a an older film. Yeah, I mean, the the, the thing is that the, there's always this thing. It's like you can never truly experience what a film is like um, at the time for its audience because as, as soon as a film, like The French Connection, the car chase and the style and the and the, the, the violence of the, the French Connection, we can never understand its impact because we weren't among the audience that saw that for the first time and it had never yeah. been done like that before. But it, it really was a very kind of... Cynic, I mean, people say cynical when they actually mean sceptical. What they mean when they say cynical like this is they just look and say, you can't trust them, you can't trust them, there's some fucking evil shit going on behind the scenes and all this. And in this case, it's... Um, while Warren Beatty was a very political um, person, is a very political yeah. person, but in his films he was always very political. I mean, he won his Oscar as Best Director for a film called Reds, which is about an American communist who went to take part in the Russian Revolution. So he's fucking lefty who's fully kind of endorses you know Nixon is the bad guy and all that sort of thing but what was interesting about this was that while it's about not trusting the establishment not trusting the system this film gets into the idea there's an all-powerful corporation at the center of the conspiracy so it's not quite the some of the classic 70 things like the establishment and and the the politicians are the ones that are out to get to you it's like to say actually pulling the strings behind all this is a hugely powerful corporation that's got its hooks into everything and that was new. I mean, I think we ex- I think we accept that now. The military-industrial complex and the fact that Halliburton made money from the second, you know, Iraq War, right? It's kind of 
common knowledge now. But back then, I think it was a case of, yeah, there's a corporation behind this. That was a big revelation at the time, I think. I mean, how did that play for you, the idea of this corporation of assassins for hire and all that kind of thing? Um, thing is, I don't want to see anything too far-fetched because that's the whole point of the, the podcasts that we're doing this kind of yeah. month on both, on both our... Um, platforms or sites or both podcasts yeah. are about conspiracy. So I don't want to say it's too far fetched because fuck knows what you know some of the evil cunts in this world are up to. So no I I, I found it I don't want to say believable. I don't want to say like unbelievable. You know what I mean? One yeah. of those ones where like you yeah. don't want to you don't want to believe it because it's horrible but you also wouldn't put it past people. I know what you mean. I think what I would say is is I can't you know, well look I you know, the conspiracies of the time tended to be a little bit less exciting than the ones you get in films. I mean the conspiracy of Watergate, as shocking as that was in the real world, is not one that you do as a fictional film because what it was was that the, the Republican Party was spying on their Democrat opponents, which is illegal, and they broke into Democrat headquarters uh, and then it was covered up and the president colluded in that cover up. Now, that in real life, notwithstanding everything that Trump has done to dwarf any other political scandal that's ever taken place, that was shocking. Yeah. You say, fucking hell, they did that? But it's not, they murdered people. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. in, in this, I think, all, all, all a film like this has to do, really, you don't necessarily need to come out of it and, and believe that that's what's really happening in the real world, or that all of it is exactly like that, as long as you believe it while it's happening on the, on the screen. And did you believe the story while you were watching it? Um. Yeah, I, you know what? I'll give that. I'll give it that. I did believe it. Yeah, I mean, it sort of plays out like a whodunit, doesn't it? It escalates and yeah. escalates because Warren Beatty witnesses the murder, and it's a shock, and it happens on top of the Space Needle, um, which is a very striking location. Then someone else that he sort of knows or had a relationship with comes and tells him that they're killing witnesses, and more witnesses get killed, and he starts to look into it. Hello, Anson. Oh, sorry. The dogs, the dogs doing something. <laughs> Obi Obi wants to know about the conspiracies of the seventies. Oh, he's also he's either, there's a there's a conspiracy of mine going on. I think he wants to tear up every last bit of fucking laminate I put down in the building. <laughs> I think that's what he's doing because he's not listening to his mum, and now he's just coming looking at me because his mum's been shouting him. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you there. No, that's all right. Sorry. Again, he is the spirit animal of your little brother who always runs to mum when dad tells him off and vice versa. Um. <laughs> So yeah, I think I think that the, the way this works is, and, and we'll talk about the other conspiracy for listen and and ha, that we in this episode and, and and how they work or the ones that work and ones that don't. This is this uses the principles of a whodunit. Warren Beatty investigates. He goes to one place. He finds out one secret. He gets a hostile reception. He digs in, finds out more. People try and kill him. People try and kill people he's trying to talk to. And I thought the film was quite like it's very seventies paced. It's a slower pace than any movie you'd make now. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it the way he got deeper and deeper. And I think it was interesting to say that the kind of person they're looking for, it was an interesting kind of like uh, sort of rabbit hole for his character to fall down, that the kind of people that that corporation is trying to recruit as assassins actually fit him in some way. He's yeah. maladjusted. He hates authority. He's a loner. He's on his own. He's got some, you know, deep seated feeling that things aren't right. And that there's, you know, and that he's maybe not, he's, He's a journalist for like a local paper in Oregon when he's probably got the talent or should, or thinks he's got the talent to be on the Washington Post, but he's not on the Washington Post. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's interesting to see when they start recruiting him, he's playing a part to go undercover, but it's also the part he was made to do because he is maladjusted. He is the kind of loner that they would try and recruit. So I thought that was very interesting. 
The other thing I thought was very interesting, I'm interested to say what you thought of it. There's a few scenes here. Someone falls off a building. I don't want to give you too much context. And you just see them fall off the edge. You don't see the drop. Um, you see the, the initial assassination. You sort of see it through the window. Um, and then you see the blood hit the blood hit the glass, but you don't see the straight up gun shot. You see, um, you see, an, you don't. An airplane blows up, but you don't see it. The camera moves away, and you get the explosion. There's quite a lot of key things that happen here where it's it either happens off screen or slightly off balance. And I, I wondered what you thought of that. I wondered if you thought that was like budget limitations or a deliberate choice by the director to to kind of show you some of those things happening in a slightly different way than you would normally expect? Yeah, maybe. I reckon that's a kind of hint at not trusting everything you see kind of thing because you... Yeah, maybe. Seen. Yeah, maybe. Um, and it... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed this. I think it kind of... It did a very good job of kind of setting up the world that this is happening in and then watching Warren Beatty go behind the scenes of it especially the kind of the, the big political event at the end that he's behind the scenes of trying to work out what's going on. And um, again, without wanting to spoil the ending, the thing about films in the 70s is that you had you had genuine suspense from not knowing whether things are going to work out. Is, 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 an, is an assassination going to happen or is it going to be prevented? Are the good guys going to win uh, or the bad guys going to win? And even if the good guys win, how big a victory is it? And you didn't get things wrapped up in a neat little bow at the end. I mean, what did you think of the ending? And it's not sort of, it's not the sort of thing you'd see in a movie these days. Uh, yeah, but I think that kind of fits. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. You wouldn't just want the goodies win, happy ever after kind of thing. Yeah, it's kind of the end is like a call to arms. There's two there's two scenes where a commission rules on events that have happened, and you know that the, the official version of the story is bullshit. And that's the feeling that you want the audience to go away with, isn't it? It's what you're being told is bullshit, and and something bad has happened, and, and they're not telling you. That's the message, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I enjoyed this. I think it, I think it holds up. You know, notwithstanding the fact that it does have a lot of kind of period detail that doesn't you know doesn't apply anymore. It's a for those of you who like Warren Beatty, this is a role he didn't always play. It's interesting for that. Um, See, so yeah, I'm I'm glad I'm glad we uh, looked into this, and it is one of the most important kind of pillars of the conspiracy movie era. Um, anything else you wanted to you know, in in closing? Anything else you wanted to say about this, mate? Mm, no, I think that's 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 pretty much it. Very good. So that's our classic for this month. We'll uh, on with the pod. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we return to a hidden gem this podcast covered in episode one, one of the all-time best conspiracy thrillers which I like so much I insist on doing it again. The hidden gem for episode 29 is Blowout. So... James, I was conscious recommending this film to be watched for this episode that this was going to fall into the category of other films that, you know, for you, that's been hugely hyped before you've had a chance to see it and that might colour how you feel when you actually get to a film that's been this has been talked about over and over and over. So why don't yeah. we just start by saying, had you seen this film before or were you aware of it? No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as I say, it is a hidden gem because it, uh, it uh, while it was a high-profile release, it wasn't huge at the box office. 
Um, this is, uh, while there are people that love it and rave about it, Tarantino called it one of the three films he would take with him to a desert island. One of his three favorite films of all time. Uh, the other two were, uh, I think, Taxi Driver and Rio Bravo, uh, which means probably going to have to do Rio Bravo because so many directors that we talk about reference that film. Um, it, uh, Brian De Palma is the guy who directed it. Now, he is a contemporary of Scor- Scorsese, Coppola and Spielberg, but he's got his own little niche, which is suspense thrillers, often with like a very dark, erotic theme, very influenced by Hitchcock. Now, they all were, but he was the one who really wore that influence on his sleeve. He did a lot of suspense thrillers, psychological thrillers, you know, slasher films that are influenced by Psycho. Um, he um, He's more well-known for other films than this, though, probably less, perhaps less typical of the rest of his output. His biggest films are Scarface, The Untouchables, and Mission Impossible, which are slightly less typical De Palma films. Um, I mean, to get it out of the way, mate, what, what did you think of Blowout on watching it? Um, it's... Uh... It's a bit odd, isn't it? It's um, it's, I found out that the premise of a technician who <laughs> records sounds for a slasher movie is a, a bit of an odd kind of you know protagonist. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, and and that is where that's where Brian De Palma. That the, the reason Quentin Tarantino loves Brian De Palma, and the reason there's a lot of critics love Brian De Palma, apart from the fact that he's an incredibly skilled technician who makes films. He is interested in films themselves and in movie making. And a lot of his films are about films and making films in a very similar way to the the way Tarantino's are. And the reason that protagonist is someone who works in films, a sound technician who hears something which indicates a conspiracy, that enables Brian De Palma to do two things. One is to have those bookends to the film, which is at the beginning of the movie, you see someone walking through a... um, a girl's dormitory at a university. That's a thing they do in America. He's a slasher and he goes and kills someone in the shower. And when you pull back, it's actually a movie. And John Travolta's trying to get the sound for the movie. And then at the end, after all the stories played out, you see the movie that was being made. Um, more like the finished article. And that's because Brian De Palma is partly telling stories about how movies get made. It also enables him to reference a couple of like key films. One is um, uh, the conversation where um, a, a, a surveillance expert who specialises in bugging phones and hearing people hears a conversation that's, uh, you know, the Gene Hackman Coppola film. It enables him to reference that movie, but also a film called Blow Up, where a photographer is taking a picture for his, because he's a professional photographer, and in a corner of that photograph is a detail that suggests he's witnessed a murder a murder that's been covered up so he's referencing other films or, or, or paying a little homage to those films with the film that he makes because that's what Brian De Palma does um so you're right it is kind of odd I mean I found it interesting that the sound the sound guy is the one who's like looking into into the movie but you're right it is it is very it is very unusual it also it's it's interesting for the fact that his Hitchcock influence is kind of uh are, are like dovetailed in this movie those slasher movie tropes that he uses are used in the film because there's the slasher movie within a film and also there is someone who's going around killing women uh, for reasons that I don't want to spoil the plot. But also it plays out like a Hitchcock spy thriller. There's a chase through Philadelphia while the centennial celebrations are on and there are fireworks going off, which is a classic Hitchcock-like setting where the, the hero of your story is trying to solve a problem or save the day and he's got to get through a crowd of other people to do it. So there's lots of references to other films in this. Was that a distraction for you? Nah, 
No, no, no. It, we couldn't be Tarantino fans if we didn't like films that referenced other yeah, films, no, right? No, yeah. The other clear allusion that's in this film is to Ted Kennedy and Chappaquiddick. I don't know if you picked up on that. No, that one went over my head. So there are three main Kennedy brothers. John F. Kennedy became president, um, and, and the other Kennedy brothers who were who were elected to, to office but never became president. Robert Kennedy because he was killed, and Ted Kennedy because he was involved in a car accident. Chappaquiddick is where it took place. It's one of those places in Massachusetts where all the elites kind of live. He was driving home one night with a woman who was not his wife, crashed his car into the lake, uh, and the woman he was with uh, drowned in the car, and he survived. The ensuing scandal killed any chance Ted Kennedy ever had of uh, becoming president. And I think there's always been conspiracy stories that maybe there was something behind that because they got rid of all the other Kennedy brothers, and this is how they got rid of Ted. And there's a definite allusion to that in this film because the, the the instigating incident in this is a politician who's in a car with a woman other than his wife. The car crashes into the lake uh, and he dies and the woman survives and is a witness to, to what's happened. Um, so as well as being about films, it ties back to the other things we talked about. The Parallax View, which we just discussed, is about those assassinations. And this is about the scandal around around Ted Kennedy. So it has a little bit of a basis in real life as well. Okay, right, okay, I'm following. Now, I mean, what I loved about this film is that, see, Brando Palmer doesn't just do Hitchcock cover versions. He 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 references Hitchcock because he likes paying homage to the directors he loves, but he also understood that Hitchcock was, for his time, those films, you wouldn't paste a film like Hitchcock does now, you wouldn't use the special effects Hitchcock does, but Hitchcock understood suspense, and he understood an unfolding story, and he understood a story where the main character has seen something and nobody believes them, right? That's that's Hitchcock all over. So he he doesn't want to make a Hitchcock film. He wants to use the techniques that Hitchcock used that work and which are the bedrock of great thriller movies to make this film. And and what sets Brian De Palma apart um, is he was an absolute master of great film technique. I don't, I mean, I love the scene. I, I don't know what you thought of it, where he's out, but this is before the, 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 the incident happens, and he's out at night and he holds up his camera and he hears the sound of the owl hooting. And then you see in split screen the owl and it's just beautifully shot at night. Vilma Sigmund was an Academy Award winning cinematographer. And you hear the wind through the leaves and you see, it sets you up that Hitch, um, Travolta hears the sound, John Travolta playing the lead character. Hitchcock hears... Uh, Travolta hears the sound and you see what's making the sound and making that link between the sound that is made and the event that made that sound is the whole basis of the film because John Travolta as the sound man hears something when that car goes into the lake which makes him suspect there's a conspiracy behind it and he's got to piece together the sound to the image to get to the answer and I thought that was beautifully done I don't know what you thought of that. No, you've dissected it like very well there, and you've explained it to me as if I was five. Like, <laughs> I watched it and probably it was kind of like, I was kind of like, yeah, what the fuck is going on here? But and I, I understood what was going on in terms of like the plot, and as I watched it, but when you say it like that, it kind of affirms what the whole point of the film is. Yeah, the um, I mean, it's again, it 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 it's where. Brian De Palma telling this story in the best way to make a great thriller meets Brian De Palma 
and his interest in, in films and the making of films. I, I read a review on this. I think it was Criterion or BFI, one of those people who kind of will do really good sleeve notes for a film if you buy it on like one of those special edition Blu-rays. Uh, and he said it was talking about how this film was influenced by Blow Up and the conversation, which we talked about. Um, and because Blowout is about, sorry, Blow Up is where you look at a picture and see that something might have gone wrong. And the conversation is where you hear something that tells you something might have gone wrong. And uh, the reviewer who was analysing this film said, blow up plus the conversation equals blowout. Or to put it another way, sound plus pictures equals film. And that's why, because there's a, there's a, another beautifully shot scene where John Travolta um, takes the sound that he's recorded and a video, a, a film that someone else who, who recorded the incident, I don't want to like tell him why there was someone else recording the incident, because that's part of the, the, the story that unfolds. But the film's got no sound and the sound's got no image. And he pieces it together and goes, yeah, I know what happened. And that's, yeah. I found that to be to be riveting. Um, did you notice the shot when John Travolta dives into the water after the car to try and save the girl? Um, the, the shot where you see that, you see him running down and you get that wide shot. John Travolta runs down onto the shore of the, I think it's a lake, and he dives in and there's a, a slope leading back up off from the, the, the shore to a bridge, which which essentially goes across the, the, the background of the shot. And without moving the camera, without focusing on anything, without turning on anything, he just composes the shot so well that you see it. As John Travolta dives into the water, you see a man stand up from a hiding place behind John Travolta, get up and run away across the bridge. Do you, did, did you remember that shot? Yes. I mean, I, I, it, the, I, I like to call this thing like because technique like that is underappreciated that was fucking beautiful it's so like simple as well yeah. but so effective and and it's it's what i think tarantino has taken away from brian de palma films which is to say uh i again there was a, a, tarantino was on a, a podcast that i listened to and he was talking about how tony scott makes films he said he loves tony scott he thinks tony scott's a great artist but the way he makes films is very different and what Tony Scott does is he has five cameras so that he can definitely get the best possible angle. And he looks at the footage and goes, that's the angle. Tarantino's approach is very different. And he got this from Brian De Palma. He says, is the frame in the right place? Is the camera going to capture everything in this shot that I want to see? And only when he's satisfied with that does he roll the camera. And he got that from Brian De Palma. Um, but yeah, it, it plays out like a thriller. I mean, do you like John Travolta in generally, in general as an actor? Uh, I have seen Battlefield Earth, so <laughs> he, well, he, I say I have seen Battlefield Earth. I've seen about two minutes and that's more of than Battlefield enough. Earth, and that was it. Yeah, he's one of the. I mean, I I've seen him be absolutely brilliant in films that I really love. Uh, I'm not blind to the fact that he's been in some absolute shit, and sometimes his persona on film come across a bit. I don't know. I don't know. It, it makes me uneasy. I don't know what it is about him. Mean, there's this queasy quality to him but I think that works really well in this film he plays a down on his luck um, you know former sound man for police investigations where an investigation went really what really really wrong you see that beautifully flashback in this film and now he's doing sound for b-movie slasher films and he's not happy with his lot and he's desperate to do something different do something that matters I thought he was brilliant in this film I think he's never been better than in this film I think this film is is, is perfect for him um how did the pacing of them? I mean, this is nineteen eighty one. How did the pacing of this film look to you compared to you know to, to a modern day film? Um, I think it's obviously a little bit slower, but it wasn't like unbearable. 
Yeah. Um, like I know you do get some ones from like back in. I suppose the eighties wasn't too bad for it, but definitely the seventies, where it's a lot slower and it does make it a bit of a kind of chore to watch. Yeah. I didn't get that from this film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the reason I love this film, we talked about this in the first episode of Blowout, and I think the reason I wanted to do it again was a, I think it's the best hidden gem that suits the theme of this this episode, and b. Yeah. Um, I think our podcast is much better um, now that you and I discuss films together rather than it's just me droning on by myself uh, on a, an inferior microphone, which I was on episode one. I just felt like it, it deserved to be done again. I've seen other podcasts revisit films they've done, so I thought, fuck it, why don't we? Um, again, compared to the parallax view that plays out the conspiracy as a as a, an investigative whodunit, you know, like a, a detective story, this plays it out as a thriller, a Hitchcockian thriller that, you know, builds up unbearable tension and pays off in a big climax. Um, a lot of craft has gone into making this work. Brian De Palma is one of the masters of technique. Think, um, you know, long long shots in Scorsese films in Goodfellas that just, you know, beautiful tracking shots. Brian De Palma makes beautiful shots. There's an overhead shot of someone coming in and tampering with the evidence on a, on the car that was in the accident. And you get this beautiful overhead shot that sees it all unfold. And you just think... So much work has gone into making every shot and every moment of this film work absolutely as well as it should, while still delivering on a paranoid thriller. It kind of it came out in 1981, but it fits into that 70s conspiracy era. This is kind of the end of that era because this is a hidden gem because this film didn't do very well at the box office. And that's because it's a bit of a downer. It's about a conspiracy where the bad guys are doing things that no one seems to be able to stop them doing. People didn't want that in the 80s. People wanted, you know, the maverick cop who won't break any rules and kills the guy at the end. And that's what you got in the 80s. And this didn't fit that era. So it didn't do very well at the box office, despite the people who did see it often loving it. Although some critics came out and went, oh, God, that was, you know, I don't want to keep watching films about how the establishment is 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 taking tearing us down, you know. It, you know, as the 70s progressed, people wanted to get away from that. They retreated into things like Happy Days, 50s Nostalgia, because they were so depressed by what was going on with, with their own political system. So I reckon if this film had come out in about 1976, it would have been a hit. It came out in 1981, so it wasn't. And that's why it's a hidden gem. Would you recommend this to other people to watch, mate? Um, Yeah. I mean, if if conspiracy is the, if their type of thing, and I think conspiracy theories are everyone's type of thing. But yeah, um, I, w- I would say that it's it's one of those ones that you do have to watch, though. It's not like the one that you can just, you know, the way you can just stick on a Star Wars in the background and kind of zone in and out. There's a lot, there's a lot of detail, isn't there? Yeah, if, so if you I would blink, say you miss it. If you're wanting a film to actually watch, not just have on, then yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad you thought it was worth watching, mate. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we look at the 1980s attempt to film a satirical version of a true life scandal, which eventually saw the light of day with a different director 30 years later. The one that got away for episode 29 is Louis Malle's Moon Over Miami. So, James, what was your awareness of this film prior to us um, nominating it for this feature? Fuck all. And what did you find out when you when you looked it up? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell me what you found out. Uh, well, I found out that there was there was one in 1941 
Yes. It's an American musical film directed by Walter Lang. Yeah. Completely pretty, com- completely unrelated. Yeah. So I thought, right, well, hang, hang on. How can this be the one that got away if there's one made in 1941? So I had to do a lot of digging in it. It's actually quite hard to find. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because it's not like a sci-fi, and because it's not by a director with like a... Uh, kind of an ongoing living fan base where people would go, hey, I've got a copy of the script from this or script from that, or here's some pictures of that film that didn't get made. It's not um, it's not like that. It doesn't have artifacts like sitting on the internet for you to go and find it, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, it was actually quite hard to find out the like unrealised project. So why don't I give you a bit of background, and, and when, it, when it leads in, I think you'll... You'll, I think you'll start to see where it's going and, and where the film that was eventually made by someone else later actually uh, fits in with all this. Um, Louis Mal is a French director who came up in the 1950s during the French New Wave. Um, and while he's seen as part of that, he wasn't really central to it like Godard was. Um, he won a Palme d'Or at Cannes for a Jacques Cousteau documentary he did in 1956. But although being a well-regarded director, he didn't really hit a career peak until the 70s. Uh, in the 70s, he got an Oscar nomination for Best Screenplay, uh, you know, not just in foreign categories, but actual Best Screenplay in, uh, in 1971 for a film called A Souffle de Coeur, or A Heart Murmur, it was called. 1974, he did a film called Lac en Lucien, which I've mentioned on the podcast before, which is about collaborators in Vichy France and the French resistance in the war. It was controversial in, in some ways, but it won the BAFTA for Best Film and was Oscar nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. So he's starting to make a, an impression. He moved to America in the 70s and started making films there. Um, in 1980, he did a film called Atlantic City, which had multiple Oscar nominations, including Best Director and Best Actor. He worked with Burt Lancaster and Susan Sarandon, big stars at the time. It won BAFTAs for, for those two categories, Best Director Best Best Actor. In 1981, he does a film called My Dinner with Andre, which was one of many quite experimental films he made. But Roger Ebert, the great film director, called it his favourite film of the year and one of his top five of the entire 1980s. It's also credited with the rise of American independent cinema from the eighties onwards, and you'll the kind of films that you see with little rosettes for like the, you know, it won the it won best film at the kind of Austin Film Festival or something, and and has those pictures of 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 actors you've vaguely heard of walking down the street together. Those kind of independent films, born, uh, you know, thanks to um, Louis Ma, and. My favourite film of his, which has a great story around it, is Au Revoir les Enfants, which came out in 1987, and which was about uh, uh, a school which is shielding uh, Jewish kids from the Holocaust in, in occupied France in, during World War II. Um, and the fun fact about that story, Au Revoir les Enfants, is Quentin Tarantino was working in a video shop uh, after this film came out. One of his customers said, can you recommend anything? And he said, you should, go and, you should watch Au Revoir les Enfants. The customer misheard him and said, what's it called? Reservoir Dogs? And the rest is history. While the story of the film didn't inspire Tarantino, he kept that title in his back pocket and his debut film was named after a customer mishearing. Um, so it's a little little footnote from history there. So, he's, so at this point, Louis Mal is riding high in the early 80s after two big successes in a row, critical, especially critical successes, but a bit of commercial success as well. His next film is going to be called Moon Over, My- Moon Over Miami. Now, this is about the Abscam scandal. Now, does the name Abscam ring a bell for you, mate? Nope. Some of, the, some of these details might start to ring a bell for you. 
It was an FBI sting operation in the late 70s. The FBI caught a con man called Mel Weinberg and his wife committing like a fraud scheme where they're trying to hoodwink people, playing characters to try and con rich people out of their money. They're, they're, they're going to go away to prison for what they've done. Instead, the, off, the FBI offers them immunity in return for working for them on a, a scheme that they're doing, known as Abscam. It's the Abdul scam. Now, what happens is they, uh, the FBI, they set up wiretaps. Um, Mel Weinberg and his wife would play characters uh, as well. FBI employees would pose as Arab sheikhs trying to buy into the gambling in casinos in Atlantic City and offer bribes to various politicians um, to see if they could show how corruption and links to organized crime and everything else has, you know, infected the American political system. Uh, and they arrested any politician who, um, who took a bribe. Now, there was controversy at the time. Is that entrapment? If you actually go and set a whole thing like that up and offer bribes to politicians, is that entrapment If you know to, to make them do it? There are also people who suspected that the FBI were doing the whole thing as revenge on Congress, the American politicians, for cracking down over them after the Hoover years, all the shit the FBI used to pull and wiretapping people and everything. It was almost like the FBI was getting its own back. Yeah. Um, a lot of public officials were arrested. Uh, a number of them were convicted of corruption, including six members of the House of Representatives, one U.S. senators, and several other city officials from New Jersey and Pennsylvania. It's a big scandal at the time. It kind of summed up, oh, here we go. This is just, you can't trust anyone. They're all corrupt. But also had some kind of amusing, like, elements. So the FBI in fancy dress, you know what I mean? Going to Atlanta, dressing as Arab princes. It had some funny details that amused people. Now, Louis Mal and his co-writer, John, John uh, Gua, who'd, who'd worked together on a couple of times before, they intended it as a comedy, a sort of satirical caper movie, taking the piss out of the outlandish scheme and the willingness of so many politicians to take a bribe. Now, does any of that storyline sound like another film that you've seen? Um, are you about to tell me? Is it just not... Yeah, it not just, yeah. it'll ring a bell when you hear it. It's American Hustle. Oh, God, that film was shit. American Hustle was David O. Russell's attempt to do a similar thing. Now, we'll come back to that. Um, but w what happened here with, with this film is that um, Louis Mal intended it as a comedy because I think he thought it worked. He'd, he'd, he'd done sort of... His La Convolution was very satirical about the, the Vichy re regime in France. There's this brilliant scene where the, uh, the French police are inundated with people you know, um, denouncing their neighbours, um, you know, and even one person denouncing themselves as a, as, a, as, a, as a collaborator, please come and arrest me, saying how people are weird. And he wanted to satirise, you know, what he'd seen that, that he thought was very funny about this, uh, this scandal. And John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, two of the biggest comedy stars of the day, agreed to be in it. They were breaking out of Saturday Night Live, getting into films. They loved the script. After the success of the Blues Brothers, they wanted to go and do other things because the Blues Brothers is basically just an extended SNL sketch. They wanted to do something that they could really get their teeth into. So they wanted to play a wider range of characters that they thought this would take them up a level. So you had a comedy about a very high-profile scandal of the day, two of the biggest comedy stars of the day to, to, to build the story around, um, and a hot director who'd, who'd been nominated for a bunch of awards hitting it together. Now, if you hadn't heard of David O. Russell having done a version of this film that you didn't like, would you be interested in, in, in this story? Yes. So it's all set to, to go ahead. Um, and John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd had had some critical acclaim for some of the performances they'd done breaking out of, of, of their traditional personas. The films themselves hadn't been huge successes, but people saw some talent in them. So this could have been where they really hit it. Um, 
they could kind of be taken a bit more seriously as good actors. They could do some, you know, comedy that kind of tells a more interesting story. This could have been Louis Mal going up a level as well. Unfortunately, the whole thing was scuppered uh, in 1982 when John Belushi died of a drug overdose. Um, yeah, I, f- I figured that was coming. <laughs> the, the whole thing was revolved around those two characters. They wrote it. It's 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 it. it, it the the script was based around because they rewrote the script once they knew they were going to get them. They rewrote the script to to work for those character actors playing the characters their way. Um, Mal didn't want to do the film with anyone else. Um, the whole thing was geared towards them, so the project collapsed. The, the writer, John Gua, who, who worked in it, he was a playwright. He turned the story into a stage play, which was performed in the late 80s. Uh, but that never went on to anything else. That that version of the story never went on to be in a film. John Belushi is now, you know, uh, legendary for a very short film career that people love. National Lampoon's Animal House, uh, Blues Brothers being his biggest ones, and all of his work on SNL. He's massive in America. I mean, I don't know how much you know about SNL or how much you watch it. I often see people in films go, oh, they're quite good. I wonder what they do. And then I find out that they're on SNL and they're like one of the biggest names in America because I just don't see that show very often over here. That's how big John Belushi was. And obviously, you know about Dan Aykroyd. He went on to be one of the biggest comedy film stars of the 80s. Um, he shows up in another conspiracy comedy, Sneakers, which we'll cover in real too. Um, Louis Mal continued on. He made more films. Some of them won awards. Some of them were quite obscure and experimental. Sadly, he died in 1995 of cancer, age just 63. So he probably had more to give, but we'll never see it. Um, and the, as we said, the Abscam film uh, story was eventually filmed sort of as American Hustle. They heavily fictionalised it and did other things with the story. I mean, Louis Mal. You seen any Louis Mal's films? You seen Orival Les Enfants? Damage? No. I mean... <laughs> and and how does Dan Aykroyd play as a, an actor for you? I mean, stuff of his that he's that you've seen him in. He's very much a comedy actor, isn't he? Mm-hmm. That that's his that's his thing. So. I don't. I think. I think this could have worked um, if they played to you know Aykroyd and Belushi's strengths. Yeah. I think if they'd done it any other way, I don't think it would have worked though. That, that's that's why he walked away. I think they said they engineered the whole thing to work a certain way with certain actors, and when that wasn't possible anymore, Louis Mal said, "This I can't do it. It won't work." See, for me, I think this film could have gone either way. Firstly, we've seen this story done in a way we didn't like. So we know it's possible to get get it wrong, right? We know it's possible to try and be funny about this political scandal and it for it to fall flat. And while American Hustle was loved at the very briefly when it came out, I think people had already turned against it by the time the Oscars, because they were nominated for a shitload of Oscars, didn't win any, and no one talks about American Hustle now. It's like, it's done, it's gone, never again. Louis Mal was brilliant at his best. La Combluciane is a fucking genius film. And Orival is a heartbreakingly beautiful film. It's the film that The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas was trying to be. Um, the film that, however, he was inconsistent. The film he did next instead of Moon Over Miami is called Crackers, which is an American crime caper. And it was a critical and commercial disaster. So we know that he can get it wrong with like an American comedy that's trying to, to do things in an offbeat way. Maybe that was just a bad a bad script that didn't work. Do you know what I mean? He tried all sorts of different things, and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. The other thing is John Belushi didn't just die suddenly. It wasn't out of the blue when he died. He'd had so many drug problems leading up to his actual death. He'd had problems on set before with his with his drug use, um, and the films had troubled productions because you're trying to keep John Belushi sort of sober enough to perform. So I can see a scenario in, in which this film was a complete disaster. However. If Louis Mal gets it right, and 
and this plays to his strengths, Dan Aykroyd's strengths and Belushi's strengths. This could have really worked, and they were big enough stars back then to make a movie a hit. So this yeah. could have been this could have been fucking huge. And Abscam is a wild tale. You've got these politicians going in, partying in Atlantic City and getting caught out. The FBI isn't entirely trustworthy in why it's doing this. Um, they um, they got the owner of Penthouse Magazine on tape and tried to bribe him because he had an entertainment show in Atlantic City and he refused to take a bribe. So that the pornographer is, you know, more trustworthy than the politicians. There's all sorts of great juicy details in this story that you could have done. Um, we also know that from Blowout, in the early 80s, people weren't in the mood for a downbeat 70s-style conspiracy thriller. Personally, I think they could have been in the mood for a comedy sending up. Maybe they were ready to laugh at how corrupt their politicians were and how shit their system was. You think so? Yeah, I think I don't. Know, I think the audience were, but I don't think those organisations were ready to be laughed at because they never are. No, you know that, I mean that makes it more fun, doesn't it? Yeah, that's all. That's what makes it so much better. It's like um, it always. I always enjoy it more if someone does a film about the FBI and the FBI makes all sorts of statements complaining about the movie. I just think, yeah, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was uh, we talked about Dillinger, didn't we? On the uh, as a hidden gem, and the FBI insisted on a statement being read out at the end of uh, of that film. Um, about what a bad guy Dillinger was and how we shouldn't glamorize him, and it's like the FBI are kind of interfering. It's I love it. I lo- you know, it just makes me want to watch the movie. Um, but yeah, this this didn't happen. David O. Russell. We don't need to get too much into it, but David O. Russell got the tone wrong because he often does. Um, that film. I, I'm I not even tell you what happens in that film. Me either, because you know what? They they went off track so many times doing little improvisations about Jennifer Lawrence putting tinfoil in the in the microwave and starting a fire. They almost didn't get around to covering the fucking Abscam scandal in the whole movie. Um, I think you've got to... It's all very well playing for, for laughs and exploring these zany characters. And Mel Weinberg was this really larger-than-life character with this bald comb-over. They used that for the film. But you've still got to tell the story, you know? Um, so this one could have worked it's an interesting one it's not quite like any other thing that Louis Mal did so it's a shame we didn't get to see it it's our best best example of a conspiracy movie that uh, didn't get away it's a bit disappointing that you can't claim that the establishment stopped this film getting made that would have been the best conspiracy theory of all it it didn't get made because John Belushi loved his drugs too much um, but yeah it's one we'll never see apart from American Hustle which we don't recommend We close the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling older films. Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake which sullies the reputation of an old classic. But every now and again the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the Hate Watch with some credit. This month we look at the updating of a classic 60s conspiracy thriller to reflect the geopolitics of the 21st century. The remake Hate Watch for episode 29 is The Manchurian Candidate. So James, what's what prior to this uh, pod episode, what was your awareness of the original Manchurian Candidate and then the 2004 um, uh, remake version? Again, fuck all. The only Manchurian I know was a, a local takeaway. <laughs> so, yeah, I had no idea what Any was, Any uh, conspiracies was... uh, in, at that takeaway? Eh. Uh, 
No. <laughs> Let, let's, let's drop into a little bit of background. In 1962, the original John Frankenheim uh, film came out. Um, the remake is by Jonathan Demme, best known for The Silence of the Lambs in Philadelphia, who came out and did it in 2004. But in 1962, it's the same story both times, but a lot of the details are different. In 1952, the, the main characters in the film are serving in Korea and are captured in Korea. Now, China borders with Korea, so it's relatively realistic for them to be taken to Manchuria to be brainwashed. And when they come back from uh, from there, they're dropped back into Korea. And because they've been brainwashed, they tell people that they've been involved in a battle. Uh, young Raymond Shaw, the son of an elite political family who's in that army unit, heroically saved all of their lives and defeated the enemy and deserves the Medal of Honor. And memory's a bit hazy because it's very traumatic, but can we go home, please? And everyone says, great, they give him a medal, and it's all, other than that, forgotten. Ten years later, Raymond Shaw is uh, you know, a war hero whose, whose mother has ambitions for him to become a, you know, a, a part of their political family with ambitions of their own. Um, but he was brainwashed and is a ticking time bomb. Uh, he's actually been uh, trained as an assassin or brainwashed an assassin, the perfect kind of assassin, because he won't even know that he's got a, an assassination job to do. He'll just get a phone call where someone says a keyword, his hypnotism kicks in, he goes off and murders someone, and afterwards, when he comes out of his trance, he won't even remember that he killed anyone. The perfect assassin. Even if he's caught, he can't Im Im implicate the conspiracy. Frank Sinatra plays... Uh, Major Marco, the commanding officer of the unit, who was brainwashed along the rest of the unit. And they were only brainwashed into saying um, what happened. Uh, they weren't brainwashed to be assassins themselves. They were brainwashed to give credibility to the story so that Lauren, uh, Raymond Shaw, played by Lawrence Harvey, would be a war hero who would be a perfect position to, uh, to play out this communist conspiracy with sympathizers inside the political establishment to overthrow the American government. But... Marco starts having dreams, which aren't dreams. They're actual recollections of what really happened when they were being brainwashed. And he starts to investigate. He meets with Shaw. They struggle. He tries to, you know, break Shaw's programming. He gets to the, you know, starts to get to the bottom of the conspiracy. And at the end, you wonder what, uh, uh, you know, you, you don't want to spoil the ending. You see how it plays out. Now, did did you just watch the remake for this, or did you have a quick look at the the original um, before we? Uh, uh, before you watched um, that? No, I I did some reading on the original and just saw how it was received and yeah. how it was like how it was rated by the people that saw it at the time. Just so I had a kind of point of like reference for this mm -hmm. one, and yeah, it doesn't bode very well. <laughs> so the, I mean, well, the the original is seen as a real classic, and it's 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 also very innovative as a film because it was actually it's got quite a paranoid, feverish style. It's not just about a communist conspiracy. It's about the paranoia in America at the time. It's about the feeling that the communists were around the corner. It's about the fact that you can't trust what you see. You can't trust what you hear. You know, there's things going behind the scenes. You can be controlled. Um, Frank Sinatra is pretty good in the movie. Very good, in fact. Lawrence Harvey's He's quite good. It's, he was a suit to the role. Angela Lansbury, as Raymond Shaw's mother, is fucking incredible. Lady Macbeth on steroids, absolutely incredible, um, and it's you know very much seen as a classic of the day. And Manchurian Candidate, although you may not have heard of that as a phrase, it is kind of if someone says, "Oh yeah, he's some sort of sleeper agent like the Manchurian Candidate," it has that currency. It, it, it it's lived on, 
And if you watch the film now, even though it's made in the 60s and it's very of its time, it clearly had references to Kennedy and things like that, it still feels topical in a lot of ways. And that brings us to the remake. Now, what did you think of that? Now, it wasn't as terrible as some of the remakes that we've had on here. But the only reason that is is because of how strong its cast is. Yeah. So I mean, Den- me Denzel out. Washington is as good Denzel as Denzel Washington, right? um, Meryl Streep, I like Liv Schreiber as well. So John do I, Boyd. yeah. Yeah. Jeffrey Wright is one of the most mm. underrated actors in Hollywood. Spot so, on. If it didn't have this cast, it would be an unholy burning pile of shit. It's still shit, but I just the 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 mess that this film is is kind of hidden behind the fact that there's some great actors in here. Well, this is this is my perspective, but if it was if it was fucking you know Nicolas Cage as your mm-hmm. lead, and any other like cast that wasn't as solid yet, it would be. I would have really really hated this film. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, this is an example of, I'm not entirely sure, well, actually, I can see why they would want to do a remake of The Manchurian Candidate, or I think what would have been more successful would have been a film that does what The Manchurian Candidate did for the 60s, to do a film in that tradition that does that for the 21st century would actually, I think, have been a better idea. Um, so it's that kind of remake. It's like, I'm not sure why you did the exact same story again, but I can see why you would think the idea of conspiracy and powerful you know, brainwashing and all that. I can see why you're interested in the story. But what they've done is they've assembled... Jonathan Demme is a capable director. I don't think he's as good as, you know, to be as garlanded with awards as he was, but he's made some very good films. Silence of Lambs is a terrific film. As you say, you've got a great cast. The other thing they've done, which it's 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 quite a conventional thriller. It's quite a conventional... Um, it, it's stylistic. Touches are just... It's a movie. It's a thriller. It's, you know, it it's... The people involved in it are, you know, range from competent to very good, but it's just they've taken a lot of what was interesting about the first film out of it, which is and and it doesn't quite have the same kind of resonance for the era. I thought. I mean, again, the context of the first one came out. It was released the week that the Cuban Missile Crisis was happening, right? So the idea that we could all be destroyed any minute—this is a terrifying time to live in is in the back of the minds of every single person watching that movie, right? McCarthyism and the fear of, you know, you know, communist witch hunts is only just finished, right? So people have got a, a that's fresh in everyone's minds. And all the and the it's very um at the time they were worried about making the film because should we be making a film about that has these like reminiscences of Kennedy because Kennedy was a war hero went into politics, was from a great political family. Um should we be making a movie that kind of says this about the political establishment and they actually needed John F. Kennedy's personal blessing before the studio would green light it because John F. Kennedy loved the book as it happens that it was based on. So it's really, really tied to the era in this kind of special way and I don't think they managed to do that. I mean did did you feel any relevance to the film? I mean because obviously you've got people coming back from the Gulf War you've got, you know surveillance technology and American corporations put it this way I think it's far more likely for an American corporation to overthrow American democracy today than it was ever likely that Soviet communism would overthrow American democracy. So it's potentially more topical, but did did it feel topical to you? Did it feel like this is what's going on in the world right now when you watched it? Um, Not really. 
Um, it, I didn't think it had as much relevance to as today and the stuff that's going on today. I mean, they, it could have done, though, wasn't it? I mean, it, this film came out in 2004. And in 2004, the president was the son of a powerful, established American political family. There had been a war. There were people who'd come back from war suffering from trauma. And you did have corp, you know, corporations in the military-industrial complex pulling the strings of government. There was something in there that could have been very topical. Yeah. I, I, I didn't. I just thought it was a bit soft soap. Like a lot of more modern films, it 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 didn't dare say too much about the world we actually live in. It just created a setting to have good guys and bad guys. Do you know what I mean? Aye. Uh, um, as we saw from the listener messages, the remake has its defenders. Um, maybe playing it straight is more to some people's taste. There's some very jarring stuff in the first film. The 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 love interest in in this movie for Denzel Washington's character. Um, I don't want to reveal her part in the story. If you do want to watch the movie, I don't want to spoil the plot for you. I mean, it's, it's an okay film. Um, so I don't want to kind of ruin it for people who do want to watch it and haven't seen it. There's a reason for her to be in the plot in, in the new film. In the old film, the love interest of Frank Sinatra is played by Janet Lee from Psycho, Jamie Lee Curtis's mum. And her relationship with Frank Sinatra is really weird and not explained. It is a bit of a loose end, and I'm not quite sure what John Frankenheimer was trying to do. So there are things about the first film people find a bit off on purpose I think but this is a bit more that character's doing this that character's doing that it was just um, I don't know the, Denzel Washington makes a huge effort to make the whole thing seem plausible but at the end of the day you're just there to kind of watch the thriller beats and see how the big climax plays out yeah uh, yeah I get that the, the, what, the final thought though is what did you think about the ending avoiding spoilers there's two things. There's how the actual final climax of the plot plays out and whether the plot is successful and whether the, which characters survive and which characters don't survive and all of that. And then there's a little epilogue after all of that that kind of says, here's, here's how we're tying this story up. What did you think of that ending? Um, I don't know. I feel like it just kind of left, left it a bit kind of unfulfilled. Did you get that or...? I, I thought the ending was a real, real cop-out because without giving away the spoilers, you've put both Liv Schreiber's character and Frank Sinatra's character in a situation. And you could either... That could end well or badly for the good guys and bad guys and for each of those characters individually. And it felt like they didn't commit to it. And there's that little epilogue kind of undermines... Hold on, what, what are you saying? Are you saying that the... It was almost like they said, we're not prepared to commit one way or the other to what happens to, let's say, to Denzel Washington's character. We have this little epilogue that kind of, it kind of undercut it. It really took away the impact of the ending for me. I don't want to, I don't want to, to tell you, to say more would spoil the ending, but I just thought either whatever happens to this, the, the conspiracy and to Denzel Washington's character, choose one and commit to it. Do you know what I mean? And say that's the ending rather than kind of this epilogue that kind of soft softens the impact kind of tries to let let everyone off easily I, I i was i thought it was okay up to most of the film i thought was okay and then i thought the ending was very disappointing i don't know whether that's just me or whether what you thought I mean, about it. it's, it's I, that little I epilogue think... afterwards with, with, with you know with, with you know where you see what's happened to some of the characters I, it didn't make sense to me i think the whole film was so disappointing that that it was all equally disappointing and shit, as opposed to the ending standing out, especially for being shit, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, I didn't go, oh, wow, that ending was especially shit compared to the rest of the film, because I thought it was just all shit. 
I, I think it was. I think it was disappointing how run of the mill a lot of it was, um, and it was. A, I think it was a rare misfire performance from Meryl Streep as well. I think she was, you know, not she get nominated for like a Golden Globe or something for that. Possibly, possibly. Let um, me double check. After nominee for best performance by an actress in a supporting role, Golden Globe nominee best performance by an actress in a supporting role. Yep. I don't think it was all that good a performance, especially not by her standards. And in the original, Angela Lansbury is fucking incredible. She was Oscar nominated for Best Supporting Actress, and she thoroughly deserved a nomination, maybe even to win, actually. Um, But yeah, that's that. So yeah, I think this is an example of um, the people who made this film should have committed a bit more to doing a story that that says where we are today. Because I think where we've gone with conspiracy films, we'll get into this in real two, is... It's not just. It's. It shouldn't just be about the conspiracy. It should make people feel that this little chill, chilling feeling inside about we're being watched or this could be happening or these. And, and even it's just a movie, but unless it taps into how you feel about the world around you, it's never going to have the same effect. And I think this was just, you know, not the best use of Denzel Washington, and that's for sure. We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will join us again soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on The Big Conversation, which continues this month's overall theme with an in-depth look at conspiracy theories in the movies. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of Double Reel. This podcast is edited on Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM, and we are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of reel two of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second real soon. See you on the other side. After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will tackle... Uh, try that again. <laughs>